Today's episode is brought to you by Geek Fuel, a great subscription box service that ships out a mystery box each month that has at least $50 worth of value for just $15 plus shipping and handling. Every box has an exclusive t-shirt, a full downloadable game, and five to seven other great geek culture items. Start your subscription today and get a free bonus item worth $10 in your first box by heading to geekfuel.com slash wordballoon. This is a great Christmas kind of gift that would be wonderful for yourself or someone you know. Geekfuel.com slash wordballoon. Welcome back to Word Balloon. The Comic Book Conversation Show. John Sartres here. Good double feature for you today. We're going to start things off with Vivek Tuari, the writer of The Fifth Beatle, a great biography of Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager who really had a very tough personal life. Vivek and I uh, talked about this a few years ago when the book first came out from Dark Horse Comics. Now there's an expanded edition, and in fact, a new event television series is in the works. Vivek tells us all the details in part one of Word Below. In part two, we welcome back Heath Corson. Right before the Thanksgiving holiday, Heath and I were able to sit down and talk in my radio studio and uh, just BS about uh, the geek culture this year and some various thoughts. Uh, you know, God, uh, Heath has been doing an excellent job in animation and in comics. Uh, he's been writing the uh, King's Feature Heroes uh, and also a wonderful series Bizarro last year for DC. Uh, plus uh, some great animated movies, uh, Tom and Jerry meet Johnny Quest in Spy Quest. And, uh, of course, a lot of the great uh, DC animated movies like uh, Justice League War, Justice League Throne of Atlantis, Batman Arkham Asylum, which really was a, a Suicide Squad animated film. So many great movies, and uh, Heath has a lot of great thoughts on uh, what's going on today in the geek culture. Okay, without further ado, let's uh, pick up our conversation with Vivek Tuari. Now, we start off on Skype, but then we started having some trouble, so we had to switch over to phone uh, in mid-conversation. But I'm sure you're going to enjoy this discussion about the fifth Beatle, the, the history of Brian Epstein and uh, his uh, relationship with the Beatles, uh, the tough life that he really led, uh, in, including his untimely death, and uh, news about uh, the event television series that's in the works, and also some uh, hints on some other directions Vivek wants to go into uh, when he is uh, done exploring uh, Brian Epstein and the Fifth Beetle. Uh, Fifth Beetle is out by uh, Dark Horse Comics, and uh, there's another great example of a a very cool Christmas gift. And also, consider giving it to someone who isn't maybe a normal comic book reader, and they'll be blown away by the art, and also the story itself. It's a tremendous presentation. So let's talk to Vivek Twari about the Fifth Beetle now on Word Balloon. Really happy to welcome back Vivek Twari uh, to Word Balloon. We spoke uh, when the Fifth Beetle was in its infancy. It had just come out uh, the month earlier. Uh, back in, uh, we talked in December of 2013. And Amazing. Really happy to have you back, Vivek. I've seen you at a couple conventions, and it's good to have you on for a nice long conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Congratulations on the book, man. I'm I'm really happy that um, it's obviously doing as well as it is to now uh, have this paperback version that includes uh, more bonus material. Correct? Yeah. No. It's it's been a real joy. I mean, uh, you know, we're three years in from the release of the book, and it's amazing to see um, how many new fans we're still picking up, and and how many old fans are, are you know still excited and still love the project and are interested in in bonus materials it's uh it's been really humbling is is kind of the best word for it um both exhilarating and humbling 
Um, so yeah, just really, really excited to be at this place and, and, and really proud of the bonus materials as well. In much the same way that I was proud of the book when it first came out, I'm really pl- proud of what we've done with the expanded edition. Tell us about the differences and some of the things that people can find in this, uh, yeah, expanded so, version. So- yeah, so it's got it's got about thirty pages of bonus material. So it's a really hefty uh, section at the end of the book, and um, you know I know that this is going to sound uh, a bit self serving, but um, but I really do think it is a special section. You know, I, I'm a I'm a comic geek since since childhood. <laughs> you know, I often say I, I learned to read by reading comics. I've been reading comics my whole life, and uh, and I will be honest, I I, I I'm not typically a big fan of expanded editions or anniversary editions because I, I usually feel more often than not they're just like you know the, they dig up a couple of old sketches throw them at the end and <laughs> just squeeze an extra dollar out of a hardcore fan and, and it's it's often insulting just to be totally honest you know Understood. and and so we tried uh, very seriously to not do that you know we we wanted to um, do two things. One is, you know, we wanted to put the book out in paperback so at just a reduced price so that it would be easier for people who may have been on the fence about picking it up to pick it up. You know, now it's it's literally fourteen ninety nine now. So that was part of our goal. That's but the second. Man. That's a, th- let me just say that because really it is a great book and the art is beautiful. The story is great. So, no, that's a great value. Go on. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, and then and then we wanted to put together some bonus materials that really felt special. And there's a couple of things going on here. Like the the first part of the bonus materials is there there's literally stuff in there that just couldn't have existed. You know, it sort of reflects the changes in the world um, since 2013 to 2016. You know, right off the bat, for example, the book has an introduction by Billy J. Kramer, who is a Brit pop artist that Brian managed alongside the Beatles. Um, he had hits like "Do You Want to Know a Secret" and "Bad to Me" and "Little Children." Absolutely, and uh, and he so he wrote an introduction to the book. He was managed by Brian, and the first lines of his introduction are: "I am baffled by the fact that Brian Epstein has not been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame," and uh, and it's dated. It says two thousand, you know, Billy J. Kramer, two thousand thirteen. Well, the truth is, a year later, Brian was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Excellent, and and to their immense credit, the Rock Hall called me. And they said, you know, we know we need to induct him, that he deserves it, but we don't know much about him. And, and you're a bit of an expert on Brian. And would you work with us? Would you help us on the induction? Wow. And so, so I had the great honor. Thank you. You know, I had the great honor of working with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on, on the induction of Brian Epstein and being a liaison to the family and providing information and tracking down memorabilia for their exhibit. And so I wrote an essay called The Curtain Rising, about my experiences working with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in inducting Brian Epstein and how much had changed to get to the place where the music industry was finally recognizing him. And that essay is included in the book. That's fantastic. And, um, and thank you. And another example, you know, the, uh, the book was, um, uh, you know, I don't think of The Fifth Beatle as being uh, and it's it's not an activist book. I, I'm not a politician, you know, but but I, I do hope that the book is inspiring and I hope that it will activate people uh, to follow their dreams. So in, in some ways, I guess you could think of it as a little little activist in that sense. I hope that people, my readers will will finish that book and close it wanting to go out and make a difference in the world. And, you know, t- to that end, in the original version of the book, um, we had Howard Cruz 
the pioneering uh, LGBTQ cartoonist who wrote Stuck Rubber Baby. Oh, yeah. Um, he wrote uh, an afterword to the book called The Freedom to Marry. And it was explaining about the the struggles that Brian faced as a gay man in the 1960s, which is a, a big element of this book. Absolutely. And and Howard was explaining how in in 2013, you know, the the world had there was a lot of the world had gotten better, but there was still still a lot to be achieved. And sure. one place to put your efforts, if you were interested, is in the fight. Uh, for marriage equality. You know, it's something that had, you know, Brian couldn't have even imagined having a boyfriend, uh, much less one day being able to potentially get married and, and have children. Yeah. So it's something that would have been very close to his heart. And, you know, that was 2013. And, and thankfully, in the years that followed, the Supreme Court ratified the freedom to marry. And now now it's a it's a legal thing all over the United States. So um, so Howard Cruz uh, wrote a, a revised essay, which is now called The Freedom for All Americans. And the expanded edition of The Fifth Beetle reflects that, reflects the changes in the world between 2013 and 2016. You know, and, um, and you know, uh, ho- hopefully that essay will be valid for some time to come. You know, uh, you know Donald Trump did recently say that, uh, that, he, that that was not, the freedom to marry was not something that he... Uh, planned on trying to overturn and i hope he meant that um you know yeah, it's that, was, that was kind of hard to know what he that was yeah it was comforting in, in that 60 minutes interview i agree and it was nice to see was was that what when he said he, he literally said it was settled law am i right yeah yeah you know i mean you know it's uh it's interesting because because you know he obviously uh you know has a number of times sort of said contradictory things yes he has um, but, but, but he did you know he did say the supreme court has ruled on it and so uh so you know i'm not, I'm not going to go back and try to change that but, you know, there's a number of other things that he's seeking to change that the Supreme Court has weighed in on in the past. Right. So, and we're, and so nothing's totally safe. But uh, but he did specifically, to his immense credit, he did very specifically uh, when it comes to the freedom to marry. He specifically said he was going to leave that be. So I hope he meant it. I agree with you, man. And I and I know, too, prior to his presidential run seemed to be on the right side of this as well. And, and, and saying, you know, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, which thankfully – you know, hopefully there are more people that that feel that way. I know that uh, Vice President Pence is not uh, a friend uh, to the no. LGBTQ no. Uh, community. He certainly and, is not. No, and it's yeah. You know, it, it's man. We were talking before we started recording, and and you know, I was telling you in a lighter way that uh, it certainly did uh, take uh, the fun out of the Cubs winning the World Series, the outcome of the election, and that pales in comparison to the real world concerns that uh that are out there right now and i can i can certainly appreciate that i'm i am fortunate that i live in a in a city where and i know that a lot of the other big cities have kind of stood up and said no matter what changes might happen on the federal level that um our city leaders um and i can say that for chicago i think i've seen the same thing in new york and yeah uh, that's that's where i am in new york there you go you know yeah we sent that message out loud and clear that's cool and yeah i'm glad but look you know you know, I mean, regardless of, you know, I, I, I know there's a lot of Trump supporters out there and I suspect there's several of them listening to this podcast. And, you know, I, I think the reality is that, you know, whatever your political uh, leanings are, we are clearly living in a world that has deep division. And this is a time where you need to stand up for what you believe in, yeah. you know, whatever that is, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously, selfishly, I hope you'll the people listening will believe in the things that I believe, which are, you know, anti-racism and pro-LGBTQ and, yeah. and a number of human rights issues. That's what, what I think I, Vivek Tuari, stand for and certainly what I think uh, the Beatles and Brian Epstein stood for. Um, but whatever it is your dreams are, we are living in a world where you need to stand up and fight for your dreams 
And I hope that's what the fifth Beatle represents, you know? Agreed. And I also, you know, um, we talked about it in our first interview. Um, All I know is as a young Beatle fan, I wasn't aware of Brian's orientation, but even more so the laws that existed in Britain in the the early 60s. And now because of things like the fifth Beatle and also maybe films like the imitation game and you, you learn more, totally, about, yeah. you know, yeah, you learn about, you know, that not only were these uh, relationships, uh, you know, frowned upon, but literally it was illegal. Yeah. And I mean, in Brian's case, I mean, it, it is particularly uh, stunning to somebody, you know, who, who didn't live through it. You know, I was born in 73. I, I didn't live through it. Yeah. And, you know, prior to doing this research, you know, when I thought about the Beatles in 1967, you think, you know, the psychedelic era, right? Sure. The summer of love. Anything goes. Summer exactly. of love, right? Yes. Free yes. love, for God's sakes. Yes. Well, the truth is, you know, it was free love and summer of love if you had the right kind of love. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, if you were, if you were, didn't, if you had the wrong kind of love, there was no such thing as free love. It was, you better stay inside that summer in the closet or you're going to get sunburned. You yeah, know, like, sure. yeah. I mean, it was, it was serious business. Yeah. And to me, that was remarkable to think of a, of a band you know, whose message was all about love that ushered in an era that's remembered as being an era of free love and a, and a specific summer, you know, a specific three month period called the summer of love in which yeah. Sgt. Peppers was released. Yep. And the guy that was actually behind the scenes making all that stuff happen was gay and was told that his form of love was a felony. I mean, it's a it's a remarkable story. Well, you know? And also to get behind this band in the early 60s. And have the vision of let's elevate this band to an international stage while having to maintain a secret life and really fearing for real serious consequences no should question. His, his, his personal life ever become No public. question. No question. But I mean, you know, you look at things like The Imitation Game, which are which is a wonderful movie and yeah. very illuminating. But when you see it in, in the in the Brian Epstein story and you see it wrapped up in in, in such a public display of love, it's uh, the discrepancy is is hard to it's hard to swallow. You know, the, 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 the major difference, there's a lot of emotional similarities between the Brian Epstein story and the Alan Turing story, you know, the, the imitation game. Um, but, but a major difference is that Alan Turing, almost by definition of what he was doing, had to do it in secret. You know, he was working on a top secret mission that he could not be public about. Whereas for Brian, you know, his whole job was to make the Beatles as publicly successful as possible. All right. Unfortunately, uh, Skype got a little congested, so we've had to uh, switch to uh, talking to Vivek via the phone. But uh, the good news is we've got a nice clean line, and uh, we can Excellent. continue our uh, our conversation. So, you, so if I may, have you re- repeat the last point you were making? Yeah. So we we were talking about uh, you know the, that that it's wonderful that a lot of stories. Um, like the imitation game and, and the fifth beetle are being told now and sort of educating folks to the, the situation uh, back in the in the UK in the 50s and 60s and how oppressive it was for, for people who had, you know, um, for people who were gay, just putting it uh, bluntly. Sure. Um, and, you know, the Alan Turing story, and I was making the point that, that um, the Alan Turing story and the Brian Epstein story share a lot of emotional beats and a lot of similar DNA, certainly. Um, but one key difference is that, you know, Turing... But by nature of what he did, um, had to keep things secret. You know, he was literally working on a top secret project that he couldn't tell the public about, but, you know, by definition. Um, whereas Brian, Brian was, his job was to market to the world, um, a rock and roll band. 
So literally, like, you know, Brian's success was almost measured by how much he could put the Beatles in the public eye. So every time he faced a, a work accomplishment, you know, it, he, he was uh, putting himself at greater danger of having his, um, his you know, stature as a homosexual come to light, which would have gotten him thrown in jail. So it's, uh, and, and of course, you know, I can't remember when exactly uh, your line might have cut off, but we were talking about the fact that, you know, the Beatles were a band that really was all about love. You know, yes. all you need is love. She loves you, lovely Rita, et cetera. And so here's also a guy that's dedicated his entire life to helping this girl, or his entire adult life, to helping this group spread a great message of love around the world, uh, ushering in eras, you know, that are literally called, you know, the, the summer of love. And yet, you know, he dies lonely at the age of 32, never having had a proper boyfriend. I mean, it's uh, it's fairly um, tragic and, and illuminating stuff. And, and I hope that in tragedy you can find inspiration. You can find, you know, again, I hate to use the word activism, but I hope that you'll put down the book and, and feel like whatever your dream is or whatever it's passionate, you're passionate about or whatever injustice you see in the world, that you might decide to, to, to mobilize and, and use whatever skills you have to to realize that dream or to make that difference. The guy was a know? visionary, absolutely, and and really saw the potential in the Beatles beyond what they were doing when he walked into no the Cavern Club back in 62. I also like, and as a, a guy from the comic book business, I think you can appreciate as well, uh, Brian's early role as a record retailer in his father's department store. Totally. You, you could make the connection of comic book retailers as well and how important it was uh, his role as a record seller, uh, both uh, in terms of becoming aware of the Beatles and, again, uh, seeing the avenue to evolve the band into what they become. No question about it. You know, I mean, comic book stores are, are, are like safe havens for me. You know, whenever I travel, if I can find a comic book store, it's like, you know, if I'm lonely, you go into the comic book store and you immediately find common ground, you know, you know, like <laughs> these are my people, you know, definitely. And, and uh, you know, and, and that's, and that's why I, I believe that those stores are never going to go out of business, you know, because, because there's something you get at the, in those places you know, adv- advice of everything from advice on what books to read to just a sense of, of comfort and the familiar. And, and I think, you know, um, that's, that's what record stores do too. And, and granted that a lot of those have gone out of business, but that's because of difference in, in, in how the medium is consumed. Sure. And, uh, and, you know, and, and certain, and in some ways they're coming back around because the DJ stores, the vinyl stores are doing fantastic business. That's a very good point. So, Absolutely. You know, well, and again, these are these are um, the record store uh, owners or tastemakers, you know, oh, putting, right. putting in the in the pop culture kind of vernacular. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> that's and that's exactly the right. thing, you know. And so, um, yeah, he really had to go out and initially, you know, uh, just for the local Liverpool uh, sellers and stuff, make sure that the the, the My Bonnie uh, records were in stock. That kind of were their first recorded uh, record push. I suppose. And uh, and then also when when, you know, he he was making those initial deals, you know, that's that's a real thing that he would kind of go and and buy thousands of records himself to kind of keep the the Beatles on the charts in those very early testing the water times. 
And, you know, it's funny, even that is sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, visionary is the right word, but certainly, uh, you know, pioneering, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that these days, I mean, you know, it's kind of music business 101, like all the record labels do that kind of thing. Hey, man, that's kind of common. When Brian Brian was the first to do it, you know, or maybe not the first, but he was among the first, certainly. Well, and it was, was it's comic books 101, too. I can think of some publishers that uh, are known to kind of stuff the stores with uh, a lot more than what they ordered. Hey, man, we only ordered uh, all of this of Book X, and we got uh, totally. 500 copies. I have to tell you, and, and this is also going to sound self-serving, but it is, <laughs> but it is a true story. Um, you know, the, the 50 Eater originally came out, as, as we were saying earlier, you know, around this time, three years ago. It came yeah. out just before Thanksgiving, like literally just a few days before Thanksgiving. And, um, and I remember uh, right before the book came out, having a conference call with Dark Horse, in which we said, you know, when the break is over, when the Thanksgiving break is over, let's regroup and have a call about how we might be able to influence the New York Times bestseller charts, because the way that those charts work is they're weighted. There are certain stores that if they sell, you know, one copy, it's, it's counted as three copies. Um, you know, it's a very strange system, but, they, but, you know, there are certain stores that are, um, you know, with the idea being that, you know, that there are a lot of smaller stores that don't report their numbers. So okay. they assume for every store X that's selling one copy, there's probably two tiny stores that aren't reporting that are also selling, you know, so it's a very strange system. But as a result there, you know, it's just known that, you know, you could try to boost sales at certain retail accounts to help you increase your, your placement on the charts, you crazy. know, so Absolutely. It's, it's crazy, right? But that's, that's, at least that's the way it worked three years ago. I don't know if that's changed, but that's certainly the way it was. Then. I, I understand. And, I, you know, I come from a, a pop, pop music background and stuff. And, and the same can be said in terms of, uh, radio and records used to be like billboard and had our own charts. Oh, totally. And yeah, it, no, I worked in the music industry. It's been, it's been years. I mean, I left the industry, the, the traditional music industry in 1999. Oh, there you but go. But I remember very distinctly, it was the exact same thing in the yes. days of SoundScan. There were certain big indie record stores that, um, that went, that their sound scans counted for two or three, you know, because the idea was that there were smaller indie record stores that didn't have sound scan. And sure. so for every one that, you know, Amoeba Records sold, it would count as three or whatever, whatever the, the formula was. Yep. But so, so we had this call with Dark Horse, you know, and, and so literally we were like, when we get back, we'll discuss how we might be able to try to get on the charts. And, uh, and then literally, you know, I turned my phone off for Thanksgiving so I could just be with my family, turned the phone back on on Friday, and I got a message from, from Paul Levitz, who's a dear friend of mine and was, you know, former head of D.C., didn't have anything to do with the book. He's just a buddy. And he was like, hey, Vivek, congratulations on the New York Times. And I called him back, and I was like, what are you talking about? What, what, what happened with the New York Times? And he was like, your book debuted on the New York Times charts. You know, it debuted at, at number five. It went all the way to number one in, in about three weeks. But Fantastic. it was a total surprise. We, like, we didn't influence the charts at all. That's excellent. I won't lie. We were, ta- <laughs> we, we were about to discuss how we could influence the charts, <laughs> but we didn't. didn't you know? Hey, man. Uh, doesn't surprise me. We were about to, yeah. Great product. Hey, man, great product, great subject. Thank you. Uh, and hey, you know, I should, I should, I want to, I want to backtrack for a second and also give some credit where it's due. You'd asked me to sort of describe the, um, the new stuff that was in the special edition. Yes. We got, we got off on a tangent no, talking no, about Howard Cruz and LGBTQ rights, but I, I got to for a minute talk about my, my amazing artists. Um, you know, Andrew Robinson and Kyle Baker did, did absolutely breathtaking work on this book. 
And one of the big treats in the, uh, in the expanded edition is b- both of them have fairly significant uh, bonus sections. So Andrew has a, literally a 25-page bonus gallery section, wh- which, you know, again, not to sound self-serving, but it's not just like a couple of sketches that we dug out and threw out to, like, get an extra buck out of the fans. I mean, it's, it's a humbling section. Like, Andrew also starts by showing his early character designs where he's, like, trying to nail the Beatles and not quite getting it right and how he find out how he eventually got it right. He shows reference photos that he was using. He shows his pencil sketches. It's like, it's a pretty amazing sequence if you're in, interested. In, it's almost educational if you're interested in, in how art is created. No, um, that's, that's the kind of stuff I think that a lot of people hope for is that kind of process information. Uh, when, totally. When, you know, the absolute editions of DC or, or the Marvel omnibus things, you know, come out. That's, that's the stuff that people that's really what you hope for. Totally. Yeah, absolutely, man. Totally. No, that's cool. <laughs> Did and, you? Uh, and Kyle Baker, you know, those of you who've read the book will know that Kyle in, in the Beatles, he, he has a very small sequence. It's a, it's a seven-page sequence called <laughs> Chaos in the Philippines that pays tribute to the old Beatles cartoons from the 1960s, not, not Yellow Submarine, but the ones that aired on television. Uh, it's a period in the Beatles' career where they go to the Philippines, they inadvertently snub Imelda Marcos, she pulls security from them, they get chased out of the country by um, by the Filipino army. As soon as they get out of the country, they think everything is safe, and they, they hear, they're burning Beatles records in America, and it's exactly when John's, um, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus comment, uh, has gotten out. And so in my mind as a creator, I thought, you know, this is a period in the Beatles history where everything went went cartoony. You know, things that yes. life must have felt like being in a cartoon. So I thought, let's do it like a cartoon. And, and who better to do that than, than master cartoonist Kyle Baker? Absolutely. Um, and he did wonderful work on it, but it was small and it, by design. It, I wanted it to feel like an insert in the book. So for me, it's a great thrill to have Kyle have a bonus section, which is about seven or eight pages long. So l- literally, it's like doubling the amount of uh, of Kyle Baker Beatles uh, art that that um, that's been in the book. So that you know, if you're a Kyle Baker fan, I think that's also a, a special treat to get to see you know even more Beatles work from Kyle. So um, so you know, uh, I, I'm definitely tooting my own horn a little bit here, but I, I really do think the special edition stuff. Um, are pretty cool, you know, and, and we're charging less for it. So I think, you know, hopefully the fans will feel like we're actually providing some value as opposed to feel, feeling like we're just trying to, to squeeze another buck out of them because that was not the intention of, with this book. In fact, the expanded edition's purpose was, was to reach more people, you know, to price it low and have more stuff in it to hopefully expand the reach of people who are hearing the story and going back to where we left off and hopefully walking away from it inspired to, to make a difference in the world. There's so many interior pages that I think would make amazing lithos or, or, you know, really wall art beyond, you know, being beautiful inside the book. Did, um, have you guys thought about that? Have, have, and you know, forgive me, I haven't seen you, uh, have a table where if you do have that kind of product. No, you know, we, um, we haven't done that yet. And it is something we talk about doing, um, you know, Andrew Robinson um, painted every single page of this book. Sure. You know, it's, uh, which, which, you know, for those of you who are listening, were, you know, comic people, you'll you'll know that that is a very rare. You know, uh, painted covers are are pretty standard, but painted interiors are very unusual these days. And so, to have one artist paint virtually an entire book—I mean, he literally did the whole book minus the the eight-page Kyle Baker sequence—is pretty extraordinary. And um, and the the canvases are gorgeous. <laughs> you know, I, um, Andrew's represented by Essential Sequential, and I, I highly recommend if you've got some cash to burn that you try to pick up some <laughs> of Andrew's originals. Um, 
but I was going to say, you know, I know that uh, that Andrew is selling uh, those pages, and and they are um, they're they're gorgeous. I wish I could afford more of them myself. I did buy a handful of them. That a point. Um, wow. You know, there were some that I just had to have. Sure. But uh, but I think you know part of the idea is like let's give Andrew a little bit of time to to sell some of his originals um, before we start doing things like printing lithos and stuff. Let's let's uh, let's you know let him uh, let him get the originals out there to the collectors first. Um, but um, but you're absolutely right. The idea of making posters and special lithos of that artwork is, is definitely something we should do, and, and maybe that's the next step. It's it's a, you know it's something we haven't talked about in, in in ages. We did we the last time we discussed that was probably about a year ago. So okay, now that you mention it, we'll probably do for that conversation. So um so I'll uh, so I'll I'll keep you posted. Maybe it'll happen sooner rather than later. Well, I'm friends with uh, with Alex Ross's uh, art people. I know Alex has been doing some amazing Beatles stuff lately. And uh, yeah. and also to do that, he obviously has to deal with the estates of the of the dead Beatles, but also you know Ringo and Paul's people as well. So uh, and I don't know if you've had to, if you had to do that at all in terms of of this whole production as well. You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting question because we we didn't you know we don't we don't you don't need license rights to to write a graphic novel about major public figures. Sure. Um, you know, it's uh, and I'm not an attorney, so so please, anyone who's listening, don't take this as legal advice. Um, but it's uh, it's you know, but it's not dissimilar to writing a biography. You know, it's a graphic right. novel biography. So in the same way that a biographer should be allowed to write a biography, you know, a graphic novel biographer should similarly be allowed to to you know do a biography through pictures. Um, so that's kind of the part of the thinking behind it, and and um, also you know they are public figures. And uh, however, you know, what we, if we were, you know, just blowing up like a, you know, an Andrew Robinson picture of Paul and selling that as a t-shirt, you know, then we really are making money off of Paul's likeness. But, right. that, that, you know, a better argument could be made that that's not really selling the artwork, you know, but I'm pretty sure we could reproduce a, a poster of the cover of the book that says the fifth Beatle on it, the Brian, it looks exactly like the cover, in which case we're selling our book and we're not really... You know, I believe again. I'm no attorney, but I believe the um, the test is what they call confusion in the marketplace, which means like, are you possibly confusing um, a consumer into thinking that they are buying a Beatles product? You know, like if we're selling like a you know Paul McCartney image on a T-shirt, might a Paul McCartney fan think that they are buying an official Paul McCartney thing from Paul? Sure. And if and if that's possible, then we're making money off of Paul. I understand. But if clearly we're selling something that's tied to the Fifth Beatle graphic novel, like the cover of the book, um, or a poster, you know, signed by Andrew Robinson, you know, then um, then my understanding is that we don't need permission. <laughs> Alex Ross, on the other hand, you know, he his work. And uh, and it's gorgeous work. Um, but his work was directly with the Beatles. I mean, I'm yes. pretty sure they they commissioned him, um, you yes. know, to do that work. So it's kind of a different thing, you know. Whereas our, you know, what we would be doing is coming directly from a story that was about the band. Whereas you know, Alex was doing sort of sort of individual pinup type work for the Beatles. So it's a little bit of a different process. No, I hear you, man. But I just think as a Beatles fan as well, uh, you know, I mean, the Cavern Club scenes are just so beautiful that Andrew was able to do. Uh, Kyle's Filipino stuff is uh, really great, too, uh, totally. the Philippine scenes, because, yeah, you know, I mean, and again, uh, sadly old enough to remember those uh, Beatles cartoons in syndication after the fact. In the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I watched those. And really, that's a crazy story in itself as well in terms of ABC being excited to get the Beatles, but 
I don't know what animation company I forget which one they specifically worked with. I think it was the same company that ended up doing the Jackson Five cartoons back in the seventies as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. V- very limited animation. I mean, literally. Thank God they had the rights to use the Beatles songs in the cartoons. I mean, it's bad. It's yeah. It's, it, but it's but again, it's the Beatles, and it is what they put out there. And again, not to confuse it with Yellow Submarine, which was very artistic. And I, and I think one of the last deals that uh, Epstein did before uh, before he passed away was to commission a, a Yellow Submarine as that's an right. animated yeah, film. That's absolutely right. In fact, the, the Beatles weren't terribly keen on it. You know, which is why they they don't. You know, the voices aren't aren't actually the the Beatles. Yeah. They hired guys who who kind of sounded like them. Kind of. And then you know, and then when when the movie was done, the Beatles like sort of saw it and they were like, "Wow, this is actually really cool." And so they filmed that that little moment. You know, there's a little moment the of the end. Beatles where they appear at the very end. Um, but you know, it's another moment where Brian was visionary. You know, Brian saw that with the right team and and done in a sort of serious, sophisticated way. You know, that that movie would would push boundaries. And the Beatles only sort of saw it after the fact. I noticed in your uh, cool story. I noticed in your acknowledgments at the at the beginning of the book, you you mentioned Queenie Epstein. And yeah, uh, who, who's yeah. Queenie? Tell us about Queenie. So Queenie is Brian's mom. So I, I dedicated this book to uh, to Brian's mom and to my mom. You know, so it's, it's for oh, the mothers. Oh, that's nice. The two moms. You know, that's very know, cool. Um, yeah, you know, Brian uh, died at the age of thirty-two, and uh, Queenie Epstein is mom. Her name was Malka. Um, which is loosely translated as Queen, so um, so that's where the nickname Queenie came from. Very cool. Um, and uh, you know, she—it's t- terribly tragic um, her story. I mean, she she literally buried her both of her sons and her husband. You know, Brian's father died a few months before he did, and, wow. and Brian's brother Clive died. Um, you know, not that, not not uh, he he lived he lived a longer life, but he died also. You know, I don't know a few decades ago. Yeah, but a mother and, didn't have to bury their son. That's the awful. worst. Absolutely yeah, awful. I mean, I'm a dad now. I I I, I can't even Ugh. I can't even say it. I mean, it's 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 horrifying. I understand that. No, I totally so, understand. You know, but she buried both of her boys and her husband. I mean, it's it's incredibly just like a Greek tragedy in some ways. I hear you. No, I definitely. Um, and hear you. Uh, and she was a remarkable woman, and so I want you know, and and I think that in her lifetime. Um, she never saw her son, Brian, get the credit that he deserved, you know, and she was incredibly proud of him. And so I thought that, you know, part of the mission of the Fifth Beatle is to, to give Brian, Brian the credit that he deserves. And, and in some ways, I wanted to do that for his mom. I hear you. you know, and, uh, and my mom passed away, and unfortunately, you know, she died before she saw me start my own company and sort of chase my own dreams. And so, Oof. you know, wherever she is, I hope she's looking down, too. And, and she was the person that... Um, that introduced me to the Beatles. You know, she was a massive Beatles fan. That's cool. And, uh, and literally, and comics as well. You know, my earliest memories of reading are sitting on my mom's uh, lap reading Tintin books. Oh, that's um, fantastic. So, uh, so my cool. mom's spirit is in this book, too. So That's Thanks. beautiful, man. Very, very nice. No, it's uh, it's an incredible story. And, um, again, I, I don't think, uh, unless you really are a huge, uh, you know, Beatle guy there or woman that really kind of, you know, sniffs around and, and really gets the backstory. It, I, you know, we talked about this. I think when we first spoke, there aren't that many good uh, Epstein biographies out there, and I think, yeah, thankfully, I mean, you thankfully know, your book is a good contribution in that respect. Thank you. I mean, li- literally, the Fifth Beatle is the only book about Brian Epstein in print, like graphic novel or otherwise. It's the only one. Really? You know? Wow. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. Because I thought, and, and, I and thought the only I did other see, one to yeah, talk about is a is a book called The Man Who Made the Beatles by Ray Coleman, which right. is wonderful. Okay. Um it's been out of print for several decades. You can find it now fairly easily on 
you know, Amazon Marketplace or okay, Facebook or you know, I any number I had, of used book websites. I thought I had before our conversation, but okay, and I didn't remember its scarcity uh, or the fact. Yeah, that okay. So yeah. why why do you think uh, why do you think this was? Any ideas? You know, I mean, it's you know, uh, the man who made the Beatles is a, it's a, it is a wonderful book, and anyone who's interested in Brian's life, you know, it's a must read. But you know, Ray Coleman, uh, he also admits that the, in his introduction to the book that he was a close friend of Brian's, and he says the book is not unbiased. You know, it's not, it's uh, you know, it's it's written by somebody who knew the man and and lo- and, and protected his legacy and loved him very dearly. And you know, obviously, uh, you, know, you just need to get a few pages in or spend five minutes hanging out with me to know that Brian was is a hero of mine, and you know, I describe him as my historical mentor. So certainly, I'm not unbiased either. Um, but, you know, I, I did my best to tell what I think is a fair and honest portrayal of the man, you know, a, a warts and all portrayal, if you will. And, and you know, when I, when I use the word, I say he's my historical mentor, you know, that's how I think of him. I'm not a Brian Epstein fan. You know, I think I'm a Brian Epstein mentee, you know, I and I think like, like any good mentor, you know, what you do with your mentors is you, you learn w- what to do from them and, and also what not to do. You know, mentors are, are human, and you learn from their mistakes and their failings. And I think Brian had a number of them, and I try to learn from those as well. And, uh, you know, so, so The Fifth Beetle, really, it's, uh, it's unusual in that sense that it's written by someone like me, someone who, who learned about Brian after the fact and was able to kind of approach his life from, a, from you know, a place of, I think, respect and in some ways awe, but also um, uh, some degree of impartiality, because I wasn't there. You know, this is, these are revelations for me. Um, and I think my discovery process really, you know, fee- I, I hope, if I've done my job correctly, you know, those revelations for me feel like revelations for the readers. I hope that shows through in, in, in the work. And I certainly know Andrew and Kyle tried to capture that, that revelatory sense uh, of what was happening in that era through their artwork. So, so how do you try to get inside, you know, his head then, you know, I mean, with, with limited access, I mean, what, what did you do research wise to, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had no choice but to do interviews. You know, I, I discovered the Brian Epstein story in 1991 when I entered business school. So this was long before I was writing comic scripts and screenplays and teleplays and all that sort of thing. I was just a student looking for inspiration. I wasn't, you know, I was dreaming of a life in the arts and entertainment industries. The Wharton School of Business, where I was at school in 1991, didn't have a lot of resources for kids who wanted to be involved in the arts. That's <laughs> changed, but that, you know, now the school does to give well, it a that's credit. Good. That's cool. But back then it did not. And so I had to study this stuff on my own. And, and I was stunned to find, you know, as I just said, that there were no books about Brian. That one book, The, the Man Who Made the Beatles, you know, in 1991, you, you couldn't find it easily. There were no used book websites that you could just, sure. you know, surf over to and buy the book. And also in 1991, there's no Wikipedia. There's no YouTube. <laughs> there's no Google. I mean, right. let's put these things in full perspective, you know? And so, so literally, I, I had no choice but to read all the respected Beatles books I could get. And, you know, I'd read these, like, 200, 300-page books about the Beatles, and I'd maybe get 10 pages about Brian. Okay. Pages that I would later learn were full of, you know, half-truths and misinformation. But what I did get was I painted a picture in my head of the people who knew him best, his friends, his allies, his, his family, his enemies, his clients, his coworkers, et cetera. And then I literally just cold called them. You know, I tracked down the people and especially the ones who were living within, uh, you know, driving distance of New York, which was home in Philadelphia where I was at school. So people okay. that I could, could actually sit down with. And I just cold called them and I said, you know, I'm a student who's been inspired by the little that he knows about Brian and I'm trying to learn more. And will you talk to me? 
you know, people like Nat Weiss, who were, was the Brian, the, the Beatles U.S. attorney and Brian's best friend and closest confidant, you know, Sid Bernstein, the legendary concert promoter who worked with Brian to bring the, the Beatles over to the U.S. for the first time. You know, I literally just called these folks and, and not one of them turned me down. You know, they all said, no problem. Come and meet with us. We'd be happy to talk to you about Brian. That's excellent. How many, it, was a, it was wonderful. How many artists like you, you know, Billy J. Kramer, obviously, uh, writing the foreword for the book and everything. Uh, were, you know, did you, did you get to talk to him extensively? Oh, very much so. I mean, Billy is somebody that I'm very, uh, you know, very pleased to say, proud to say, that has become a very dear friend of mine. Um, you know, I've had so many late-night conversations with Billy about Brian. I mean, he, he has been invaluable to me in my, my studies of Brian. Did and they... quite frankly, Billy's also been a big champion of, of Brian's legacy. I mean, but, you know, he, he started his intro, as I said earlier, by saying that, uh, you know, he was baffled that Brian hadn't been inducted. And Billy was really, for years, has been leading a, a very vocal charge to, to, to get Brian inducted. So God bless Billy J. Kramer. He's a wonderful, wonderful human being. That's awesome. What, what does it look like when you go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Is there a, is there, you know, is it like uh, Cooperstown for baseball? Is there like a big, you know, kind of... Plaque area. Yeah, I mean, there there is a you know I have I haven't been in years uh, to, to the museum, but there is a a, a Brian Epstein exhibit, you know, and in which uh, with all sorts of Brian Epstein memorabilia, and you know I have to tell you, you know, um, sort of a cool story, you know, I I had um, I had heard when I started to do my Brian Epstein research when I was just a student, you know, several years into it, I had heard that Jude Law was planning to make a film about Brian, and he's a huge Beatles fan. He was actually named after the song Hey Jude. And I remembered, you know, this was, you know, some 15, 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, and I was thinking at the time, you know, Jude, Jude had done Cold Mountain and talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, and he was perfect for Brian. I remember thinking, my God, he'd be amazing. I hope he doesn't screw it up, you know. And then a good, you know, 10 or 15 years had passed. And, and, I, and all of a sudden, I wasn't a student anymore. I had had success in the theater industry. I had produced uh, Raisin in the Sun. Um, I had worked on Mel Brooks, The Producers. And, uh, you know, and I was looking for my next project and, and I re- was, you know, I was proud of A Raisin in the Sun, but it was a, a revival, a classic sure. piece of African-American literature. Absolutely. Totally. Um, so I produced a version that had Sean Combs or P. Diddy in it. Oh, fantastic. Uh, That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was mine. And then in the wake of that, I thought, you know, what's the next story I want to tell? And I thought I want to tell a new story, a story that hasn't been told before. And I realized it was the Brian Epstein story. And I thought, you know, nobody's told it yet. Jude Law hasn't told his version yet. So, you know, why not me? Like now I'm, I'm not just a, a kid with, with studying anymore. I'm a, I'm a respected, you know, theater producer and, and I should just do this, right? And, and so I reached out to Jude Law, you know, to, to see if, you know, where he was at and could we, could we join forces maybe? And, um, you know, he, uh, he and his reps confirmed to me that they were, that he still, you know, cared about Brian and, and the Beatles legacy, but he'd moved on. He was not interested in playing Brian anymore. Okay. And, uh, and so Jude, I wouldn't say that we became buddies, but we, we began to be friendly and had an open line of communication. And I had learned that over the course of his, you know, preparing to, to potentially play this role, he had purchased at auction a series of Brian's diaries. You know, to do to do some research. Wow! And so when uh, when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was inducting him, uh, inducting Brian, you know, I I called Jude Law and I said, Hey, you know, I know you bought these diaries. I I know you you care about Brian, but you're not a, really a collector per se. Um, how would you feel about donating those diaries to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? It'll have a little plaque that says, you know, from the collection of Jude Law, which is kind of cool. Absolutely. And 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 this way, you know, anyone who wants to see them will be able to go to the Rock Hall and. 
request a look. Wow. And, and, and Jude, of course, said, sure, that's a great idea. No problem. And and so, you know, because of because of my uh, my relationship with Jude Law, which started out in a sort of like, I wonder if we're going to be competing. I wonder if we can collaborate. And, you know, years later, you know, we're friendly enough that, that that's the reason that uh, that Brian's diaries are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it's just kind of a cool thing, you know. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm, I am a big believer that there that that there's no, there isn't really that it's foolish to try to compete when when two people are interested in the same thing. That you're you're better served, you know, trying to collaborate and, and join forces. And you know, all all you know, what, what's the phrase? You know, the the rising tide raises all ships. You know, I, I've always been a big believer in that. And you know, I you know, I I, I could have. In that, in that, those days, tried to say, "I'm going to stay away from Jude and just try to do it first. And you know, instead, I was like, "Man, let me give him a call and see whether we can do it together." You know, and that didn't work out. But years later, it resulted in this wonderful, wonderful relationship. So, no, that's awesome, man. That's a very Good superhero uh, attitude as well. We should join forces. I think so. <laughs> And overcome, overcome Thanks, the obstacles. Brother. That's awesome, man. Excellent. Hey, you know, so what was it like working with Mel Brooks on uh, The Producers? You know, it was my first experience working on Broadway. So what an amazing first experience to have. Huh. Um, let me be honest, my role in the show was very small, but the, the lead producers on that show really took me under their wing in a sort of mentoring capacity, which was wonderful. I got to attend meetings I probably shouldn't have been allowed to attend, be on calls that I shouldn't have been on, uh, mostly because, as I said, I kept my mouth shut and my eyes and ears open, and I learned to uh, learned how to produce. Um, so I want to be honest, I didn't have, like, lengthy, you know, back and forths with Mel, but I certainly got to watch him in action, and he is a force of nature. You know, he is he is everything you'd want him to be. He's very friendly, very funny, very much like your your wild, funny, you know, uh, great uncle, you know, the sure. crazy great uncle Mel. I mean, that's kind of what he's like. But, but you know, he's also, um, you know, he knows his stuff and he's very demanding and, and, and very professional. Like when he has an idea that he thinks is the right idea, he'll fight for it. And, uh, and if, if the producers want to do something differently, you better have a damn good reason and a damn good explanation as to why. You know, and he wasn't stubborn. Like if you did have that good explanation, he, he'd listen. But, uh you, you know, he was, he, he was the real deal, man. He was, it was, a, it was, I got very lucky in some ways that my first exposure to theater production was working with him because, because it was an amazing learning experience and really, uh, you know, really set the template for, for everything that I've done since then. So what's happening now with, and again, because you made a great graphic novel and I, I do want to stress that, uh, Thank you. It, it is a great product onto itself, but that said, this is a great story, and I do think that it's a story that should be told beyond, you know, the, the graphic novel audience. And I know this is one of your ambitions to yeah, turn yeah. It into so something so, um, so we are we're um, expanding the Fifth Beetle right now into a television event series. It's going to be six one-hour episodes. Um, for those of you who've been following, who are listening, who've been following the book for for several years, you'll know this is a bit of a shift. For a number of years, we were developing it as a film, uh-huh. um, but I think the television industry has changed radically in the past several years, and there's just some fantastic work being done in television. And you know, uh, to use House of Cards as an example, you know, there was a sure. period when. You know, I think David Fincher and Kevin Spacey wouldn't have even considered doing anything in television. Sure. And, you know, and, and, and now, you know, all the great actors and great directors are doing television work. So it's a very, very exciting time. And for someone like me who spent literally, you know, more than half of his life, 25 plus years researching Brian's life, I have so much information about the guy. So the idea of having a six hour canvas in which to tell that story, um, you know, is truly a dream come true. 
you know, I, I very specifically wanted to keep the graphic novel to about 120, 130 pages. I think it came in at 128. Um, and I wanted to do that because I wanted our readers to feel like they could pick it up and read it in a couple of hours, depending on how fast you read. Okay. You know, that it would feel like watching a movie in some ways, you know, that you could read it before your flight landed if you're on a short flight. Good point. You know, that, sure. that, that I kept thinking about the person who's not a huge Beatles fan or not a huge comic fan who just picks it up and sees that, like, especially with the paperback, it's, you know, fourteen ninety nine. It's not too expensive. The artwork is beautiful. The story sounds intriguing. It won't take too long to read. You might just give it a shot. You know, that that was a big, big thing for me. Um, and, and a film would have similarly been two hours long. I think it would have made an amazing film, but it would, have, would probably have had to tread very similar ground to the graphic novel. But now that we have six hours, you know, we can get into very deeply into a whole number of stories that we weren't able to tell in the, uh, in the graphic novel, you know, to, to really use a comic book term, in some ways you could think of the graphic novel as setting the Brian Epstein universe, and now in the television <laughs> series we'll be populating that universe with more characters and more stories. Very good. You know, to give you two immediate examples, um, Pete Best. You know, Pete Best was the drummer before right. Ringo Starr, and he was the uh, the drummer that Brian had to fire as one of his first responsibilities as manager. And we made a conscious decision, or I should 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 blame myself. Uh, you know, give myself that that credit or that blame. Uh, I'd made a conscious decision that we were not going to tell the Pete Best story in the graphic novel. You know, I wanted to keep the book short, and I thought that, you know, in order to tell the Pete Best story, you would need to not just tell the story, but but explain why, you know, Pete was and is, he's still still very much alive, a, a lovely human being, he's a lovely man, and... um and I wanted, you know, if you're going to tell that story of Brian firing Pete, you need to let the readers care about Pete, you know, as they should. Sure. And so, you know, to me, that's like three or four pages about Pete to make your readers care, you know, three or four pages about, you know, how that happened. And then, you know, the, the how the firing happened and why, and then three or four pages of the aftermath, you know, and so that's like, what, like 10 or 12 pages, you know, that's a lot in a 120 page graphic novel to spend sure. about 10 pages on Pete Best. So we made the decision not to do it, and it always bothered me. To this day, I'm not sure it was the right decision, but it was my decision. But lo and behold, we now have six hours. And I can tell you in the pilot episode, which I finished writing, I'm writing the, the teleplays myself. Fantastic. Um, the pilot episode, Pete Best, is a major character. I would think so, um, sure, sure. So, uh, so we're really, really excited about that. It really is not going to be a carbon copy of the graphic novel. It's, it's the best, you know, in, in, in when I have two seconds to describe it, I'll say we're adapting the graphic novel because that's easy for people to understand. Sure. But it's not, it's not an adaptation. It is an expansion. And, uh, and I'm super excited about it. The Beatles are fully supportive of it. Paul Ringo, Yoko Ono, and Olivia Harrison have signed off on it and have allowed us to do a deal with Sony ATV, which is a long-winded way of saying we have access to, to Beatles music for the television Excellent. series. It's Very a huge good. coup for us. Indeed. It's the first time the band have ever granted uh, unrestricted access to their catalog to a television show, so wow. or, or a film for that matter. So it's a huge honor. Jeez. And um, you know, for anyone who's listening and wants to to get cutting cutting edge news on it, please follow us on Twitter. We're at Fifth Beetle, and we're also on Facebook. And we have a mailing list at fifthbeetle.com. I expect within, as I mentioned earlier, the pilot script is just just completed, and I expect within the next few months we're going to be announcing our director, we'll be announcing our lead actor, and we will be announcing our network. You know. Where, where you'll be able to okay. see the darn thing. Um, <laughs> we have done a deal with a company called Sonar Entertainment that are well-respected TV financiers and producers. So this is not just something that I'm dreaming about. It's actually something that is, is very much happening and, and actively in development. So 
So please stay tuned for some uh, creative announcements shortly. Excellent. I am on your mailing list, and I uh, and I'm glad to hear that uh, things Thank have progressed you. on the TV side. Because no, that's that's great. No, it's a it's a wonderful, interesting story. Again. Given the environment we are currently living in, it has become a timely story again, I think, in a well, lot of ways. You. And and in, at its heart, as you say, it's a guy who wouldn't take no for an answer within his own career and also what he saw in this band. And you've got to give him his due for yeah, being, yeah for, for really knocking down these obstacles and getting the Beatles to where they were. I mean, he That's really right. he was instru- literally right. instrumental in, in making a lot of this happen. And I think it is. It's a it's an excellent story. Did so? Did you interview? I'm I'm assuming you did interview Pete Best extensively. You know, I have not had oh. extensive interactions with Pete Best. You know, because he was not a part of the uh, of the graphic novel. But that's going to change now that we're getting to the uh, to the film side of things. That's cool, man. So I, I, I've met Pete, but I, I will be. I'm going to answer your question honestly. I've not had extensive interviews with him, um, but I have met him, and uh, and and we'll need more of him as the uh, as the television show plays on. That's really cool. You know, it's funny. I I just was talking to another uh, young creator who wanted to write something about Mort Weisinger as uh, the Superman editor at DC. Uh, from the 50s through the very early 70s. And he's like, do you know who you can talk to about that or who I could talk to? And I said, well, I can kind of come up with a list, but you got to remember that literally it's been 45 years yeah, since he yeah, stopped yeah. editing Superman. So I don't know who's left. I, You know, again, I mean, we, we're down two Beatles, unfortunately. Are there enough people to still research and get first-hand knowledge in, in, in this I mean, era? you know, it, it's an excellent question. And, you know, over the course of doing this, a number of, of them have passed away. You know, I mentioned sure. Sid Bernstein and Matt Weiss, who were two invaluable resources to me for the graphic novel, and they passed. I wasn't you know? sure and, if and Mr. Kramer was still around, if Billy J. Kramer was still Billy around. Billy is very much alive very and good very that. active. In fact, if you go to billyjkramer.com, you'll see he's still making music. He's actually uh, actually in the process of recording a new record. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, he tours from time to time. He's he's uh, he's amazing. Very cool. Um, you know, he, uh, he went through bad periods like a lot of rockers did, and now he's totally sober. And his last record was called I Won the Fight. Oh, that's uh, awesome. And that's what's that about. He is a survivor, that guy. He's amazing. Very cool. He really, he really is a true inspiration. Um. You got to get that. You can if you need to. No, that's actually not me. I think that's my wife's phone. Okay, so I'm, I'm sorry if that's not enough. Uh, no, nah, no, nah, that's audio can... verte, as I like to say when when, when real life sorry. interviews. That's okay, man. <laughs> not at all. We roll sorry. with it. It's all good. Um, man. But yeah, you know, and look for me, uh, you know, one of the great joys of of being able to continue working on this project is to start talking to people that I missed the first time around. Sure. You know, and also, you know, as Brian Epstein's story gets more and more in the public eye. And also as, um, you know, as the world changes and it is a more accepting place than it was, you know, uh, 10 years ago and, and even maybe than it was three years ago. Let's, uh, as a quick aside, let's hope we keep moving in that direction. Indeed. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, but we have been moving in that direction. And there are a number of people who had material or information or stories about Brian that were just kind of keeping their mouths shut, you know, for fear that it wouldn't go over well or no one would care or it was controversial. And now those people are sort of, you know, ringing, picking, the, picking up the phone or sending me an email or, or, or shooting me a note saying, hey, you know, do you know about this guy or, or I had this experience or let me tell you a story about Brian that I've never told or I have a letter that I've never shared or, you know, so the, so the research goes on because new stuff is coming up all the time. 
So, you know, your, your point is valid on, on one hand. There, we're, the world is losing a lot of these people, and now is the time. But I've also noticed that as more and more stuff happens, more stuff comes to light because more people are, are, showing, are opening their archives, if you will, you know. Sure. No, that's and great. certainly the folks who are getting older are more willing to talk now than ever. I mean, I think Sid and, and Matt, you know, rest their souls. They're not here to speak for themselves. But I, I'm fairly certain that part of why they opened up to me is because they realized that they were getting old. And if, and if they didn't tell their stories to somebody like me who cared, some of those stories would have gotten lost in time. Indeed. You know, it's got to be great. And I know in my own limited experience uh, working on some historic stories in uh, my radio uh, side of my career and stuff, uh, I did a I did an audio documentary about uh, Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney and their first er, their, oh, cool. their Soldier Field fight. Uh, you know, back then it was seventy five years ago. It's been about eighty years since then. Uh, but but saying that, uh, it's you do feel like Clark Kent, don't you, in terms of pursuing these stories? I mean, this yeah. is it's kind of fun. There is that investigative. Oh, it's a, it's it's what a joy. I mean, there are days where I'm just like, I can't believe this is what I do, I do bet, for a man. living. I'm I'm the luckiest guy in the world. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Hey. Uh, keep it up. Continued success. The expanded paperback version of the Fifth Beetle is out. It came. It out, is indeed. It came out this month, correct? It did. It came out uh, in, at the end of October. So oh, actually, end of, October. end of last month. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So perfect time. Uh, if you didn't get it the first time around, excellent uh, gift for a Beetle fan. Thank uh, you so a, much. A, a tremendous graphic novel, and uh, very excited about uh, the prospects of a, uh, a limited uh, television series to expand the story and uh, and get more information on this really important chapter in uh, the LGBT community and also in, in rock history as well. So uh, Vivek Tuari giving uh, Brian Epstein his due in The Fifth Beetle. So congratulations. And, hey, man, uh, I, I told you this the first time, and I mean it. Anytime, you're welcome back. Let's talk more. I didn't even ask, ask you about uh, doing the Harveys. So, uh, yeah, you know, oh my you, gosh, you, you kicked ass doing the Harveys. If you want to go on about that for a second, <laughs> thank you so much for saying so. It was a, you know, talk about surreal dreams come true. My gosh, you know, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up reading comics and, and, you know, these, these comic legends are, are really my, my childhood superheroes. So, uh, you know, that the creators were my real heroes so to be able to host the Harvey awards and get to meet and honor a great number of them was just, I mean, I did it twice, my gosh, <laughs> two nights of my life that I will never, ever forget. That's awesome, man. Uh, it was a real honor and a real joy. Yeah, well, bad news, man. You're in the nerd club now, so we're uh, you're one of us, and that's good. <laughs> I've, and, I've and, always been in that club, absolutely. man, but thank you. It's nice <laughs> nice, to, nice to be here. It, you, this, it, this is family. I mean, I said it earlier, you know, when I... When I go to, to town, strange towns, I'll seek out the comic book store because it'll be a place where I'll immediately won't be lonely, you know? No, and I'm, We are family. Well, I've experienced it firsthand. Every time uh, I've seen you, you've given me a nice hug, so I always appreciate ah, that. Thanks, so, brother. No, absolutely, man. No, come back, and uh, really, I, I hope you will come back as this, uh, as this develops and evolves because uh, I do want to hear more. And I am. I, I mean, I talk to a lot of the... Uh, comic people who are now experiencing, you know, the television side. I know you come from the theater side as well, but I think this is this is interesting times, and I think also nice to see beyond the success that DC and Marvel and some of the others are having with uh, the fiction that they're able to bring from comics to the other mediums and stuff. It's nice to see the the true life stories that may totally. start as graphic novels and have that experience as well. So, totally. So yeah, if you're willing to share, I'm, uh, you, you've always got a corner here to talk about it. I would love to, and, and we will have television news to share soon, so I, w- I would love to do that. And, uh, and I will quickly say, you know, I, I love working in television, and I'm super excited about it. 
but I adore comics, and I'm not leaving the comic world behind. Excellent. And, uh, you know, in um, I believe the pub date is, is going to be March. I'm doing a Star Trek one-shot. Hey, that's um, which great. I'm really stoked about. Nice going. And, uh, and I just started working on my next graphic novel, which is a follow-up of sorts to The Fifth Beetle. In some ways, you could almost think of it as a prequel. And the, uh, the tentative title is A Mess of Blues, the Colonel Parker and Elvis Presley story. Fantastic. So we're, uh, wow. so we're getting into Colonel Parker next. Man, I saw, and, that, um, I saw that Jerry Weintraub uh, documentary he made before he passed away. And even just that little bit of him talking about uh, the 70s Elvis tours and working directly with the colonel. That guy's crazy, right? Yeah, crazy, fascinating guy. Even, man, even a a crazier story than the unfortunate things that Epstein had to go through. I mean, literally, Colonel Tom Parker is a carny who became a multi-million dollar guy, but I don't think the carny side of his life ever left. Yeah, oh, totally. (laughs) And I don't know if you know the whole story. He was born in the Netherlands, his real name was his real name was Andres von Kuyek. <laughs> he he did something criminal in the Netherlands. We're not really sure. He may have murdered someone. Wow. He li- he literally faked his death, stowed away on a ship, <laughs> washed up in America, gave himself the name Tom Parker because it was kind of a blah unknown name. Joined the carnival because no one in the carnival cares about your history. Yep, and completely reinvented himself. There you go, man. No, and I and, and, a, and a large part of the reason Elvis never toured outside of the United States was because Parker wouldn't let him do it alone, and Parker couldn't leave because he wasn't Parker. I did know that. I did it's know that there was some insane like, story. Yep, cloudy, cloudy European things that that kept Colonel Parker from it's an, leaving insane the country. story. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> Parker was his own greatest con. Indeed. You know, Colonel, Colonel Tom, and he wasn't a colonel. It was completely made up. <laughs> you know, he was his own ultimate con. It's an amazing story. That's you know, fantastic. And it's funny, I've been resisting man. telling it because, because like, I, you know, it doesn't, you know, I don't, yes, if anyone who's read book. The Fifth Beetle will tell you, I don't have a lot of respect for the guy, you know? No, and that's, and yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm laughing because of the audacity of the man. And no, he's a terrible man. Absolutely. Terrible, terrible human being. But, but, uh, but a, really a, lot, a lot to be learned from it, from his story, you know? I'm sure. Oh, my God. A and lot totally, to be from and totally screwed over Elvis, my God, in so many ways. Here, Elvis, here's a handful of quarters. While I'm stacking the bills, uh, you know, the dollar bills in the in the back and everything. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, look, on one hand, to, you know, there's no question that the guy, his marketing savvy and his oh, business yeah, genius, you know, made Elvis what, you know, he turned Elvis from a country music bumpkin to like a massive international pop culture icon. But at the same time, he destroyed him. I mean, he made him and, and unmade him. It's, Agreed. It's a, it's a remarkable story. Oh, man, dude. Oh, well, there you, and there's your next limited television series. Uh, well. we'll see. We'll see. Thanks, brother. <laughs> no, that's great. No, but... you know, it's funny you say that because in a lot of ways, you know, the, um, you know, they, the, in the television industry, they don't, they don't like the term limited series. They now use the term event series. Sure. And part of sure. the reason is because, you know, if the if the limited series does well, if the, you know, they're like, you know, maybe there's a, a second season to be had. That's you know, true. So when we talk about this, they're like, you know, what happens if the Fifth Beetle does great? You know, what's the next season? And, and my answer to that question is that we think of the Fifth Beetle, um, you know, as season one of a larger anthology series. You know, the, the yes. defensive title I have for that is On the Shoulders of Giants. And the second season would be Colonel Parker. Oh, dude. And, and then maybe after that we get into Andrew Lou Goldham and the Rolling Stones. And there you go. Peter Grant and Led Zeppelin and Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols. And, you know, you just kind of keep going. 
Got and, it. and really, Brian's the guy that started it, right? Brian's the, Brian was there at the beginning, and the rest of the guys kind of laid down the template, you know, sort of picked up on his sure, template. Man. No, that's so. fan- that's fantastic, and you're right. And coming from music radio, I, I know a lot of the stories as well, and I think that's that's there's a lot of good stuff there. Oh, man, it's stranger than fiction, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's it's great, like you man. know you watch vinyl and you're like you know they're cre- they created this like murder what, and like yeah, all this crazy stuff happened Go and ahead. I'm like and I keep thinking like why are you creating all this stuff just tell the Peter Grant story if you want sex drugs and rock and roll no shit. I mean my God I, you know you don't have to make this stuff up I agree you know? I, you know it reminds me of in the 80s when they would do like miniseries and like James Michener's space. And it wasn't really what happened during the Mercury mm-hmm. program in Gemini and stuff. And it was kind of loosely based and it's, yeah, it's like, Oh, you're, you're close, but you're not. And I even questioned some of the real things that were in there that I didn't realize that, um, you know, DJs spinning and, and mixing and stuff was happening as early as 1973. Cause it had that feeling of fake history. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm like, aren't they a little off? And of course my New York friends corrected me and I'm like, no, 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 that's when it was happening. And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. fine. But again, yeah, they were making stuff up and yeah, it was, it's a shame because I really wanted to like that series and it's a missed opportunity, but yeah, like, you know, truth is stranger than fiction and, and you're, you're you're cherry picking the good stuff, so I, yeah, yeah. You got you got a good plan, dude. That's nice. Thank you. Excellent, hilarious, man. I'm telling you, that's really really cool. Nice Thank going, you, Vivek. My Keep it up, man. Thank you. And yeah, please check in in the in the future, and, and we'll do this again. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me on the show. That's Vivek Twari. Check out the Fifth Beetle from Dark Horse Comics, and let's all look forward to that event television series. Hopefully, coming up uh, very soon. Very excited about that for Vivek, and I look forward to checking in with him again in the future. Today's episode is brought to you by Geek Fuel, a great subscription box service that ships out a mystery box each month that has at least $50 worth of value for just around $15 plus shipping and handling. Every box has an exclusive t-shirt, a full downloadable game, five to seven other great geek culture items. This is a terrific Christmas gift or consider even uh, getting it for yourself and having several holiday and birthday gifts to share with friends to, for months to come. Uh, some of the things that I got in my Geek Fuel uh, box that I love, uh, I have a great Firefly uh, t-shirt of the Serenity ship and uh, something that I always have been bragging about for the, the last few weeks, and that's a kitchen board for my kitchen that is shaped like a Nintendo game cartridge. That's the thing. You get practical items from geekfuel.com that uh, have a geek flavor to them, but you can really use as well. Another thing, a cool toothbrush holder that's shaped like a dragon's egg. You want to treat yourself and your friends to a Geek Fuel subscription box. It's a great thing that you can get monthly. There are many different plans. If you start your subscription today and uh, include Word Balloon in the mention, you'll get a free bonus item worth $10 in your first box. The way to do that and subscribe to Geek Fuel is to go to geekfuel.com slash wordballoon. All right, without further ado, let us uh, pick up a conversation with Heath Corson. Uh, this was recorded uh, Thanksgiving week, and a great opportunity to sit down with Heath and uh, share some uh, geek ideas and uh, notions. Just a good casual conversation. We've been doing it over the last couple of years at my Chicago radio uh, studios, and I uh, was happy to welcome Heath back to Word Balloon. Comic books had these culture wars first. We had it before anybody. We had it down. We, what, what is Batman versus Superman in the 80s? And what is Captain America versus Iron Man, except kind of the 
red-blooded uh, uh, red states versus the cultural elite. Do you want to talk about this as far as that goes? Because I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I'm happy to sort of put that theory out there because we've been sort of dealing with this for a long, long time, well, and and know, we were there first. That's interesting because I, I, I never, I never took it that way. Let's let's do. All right, why, why don't let's we do jump it. In? All right. See, Heath Corson already, uh, you know, started off with a bolt of thunder. A bolt <laughs> I shazammed of you. I shazammed you right out of the box. Absolutely. Good to see you, man. You know, it's good is, to see you. This is like our little, you know, kind of uh, Thanksgiving week uh, tradition. We do. I come and I visit John, and we work ourselves into lather about comic book stuff. And it's, you know, it's always a, a casual conversation. But now you you, yeah. you bring this up and because we're, we're talking a little bit about the culture wars that have been going on in comics. And you make the point that... Uh, you, you know, that certainly Frank Miller's Dark Knight represented that, I suppose. Certainly of the 80s uh, in our Batman versus Superman and in, in the people that uh, felt like they could work out in the light and the people that had to work in the darkness under the uh, the cover of shadow, who who the justice was no longer covering. But the political lines kind of blur. They do blur in that. Because, yes. I mean, and, and, you because know, who's right and who's wrong? Well, there's that. And also, I mean, people would say that maybe Batman is a, a bit more conservative and, and take charge and do his thing. That's right. But then again, Superman is represented by that Reagan right. That's right. So it is kind of like, well, which, you know, what side is there and everything? You know, I, I don't know. But even... What I found so interesting is we uh, certainly these movies came out back to back. Batman versus Superman and then Marvel uh, Captain America Civil oh, War. Sure. Well, sure, this year. Where yeah. and then Civil War is very, very close to our culture war with that red-blooded Captain America who is the blue-collar guy versus our cultural elite, uh, over-educated Tony Stark. Cap's Bernie Sanders? Yeah. You know, because I don't, I, don't, I don't think he represents uh, the Trumps. <laughs> <laughs> I got to be honest with no, you. No, but but I just think it's it it's interesting that in comics we've been wrestling with these uh, thoughts for a while now. Oh, yeah. You know, this yeah. isn't new to us and it, it's interesting because we've always had these characters tear each other apart and yet come together and work together and and yeah. find common ground again. So, it's interesting to see the culture wars uh rumbling and and the comic book guys to sort of go, "Oh, you guys are a little behind the behind the mark here. <laughs> we're already at the part where, you know, when when Titans clash, where they well, fought and now we're coming back together." But that's the thing. I think in the Silver Age, I don't I don't think Stan was thinking, "You know what's great is I got my conservative on this side, I got my uh, liberal on I this side." I didn't know side. you're doing voices now. So, yeah, you know, not I've always done that. <laughs> You, you know, I do, I do them more when I'm with uh, the Tiny Titans guys with Art and Frank. That's amazing. But, I, you know, yeah, I've, uh, I can't deny. And and certainly, yeah, I mean, I, we really, we started doing Trump, you know, when it, when it came out, you know, when he started running for president. Sure. And, it's just, and then I would do, th you know, I like the Legion of Doom. I'm uh, <laughs> considering them for my uh, cabinet. Yes. I'm going to have Dr. Uh, Light come in, and I think he might be uh, good for uh, Department of Energy. We're really looking at Solomon Grundy to run the interior. We think he's going to be fantastic. I love the man. He's born on a Monday. You gotta Everybody knows us. you got to clean the swamp. I, who do you go to if you can't get Alec Holland? Killer you get, Croc. Exactly. You get Killer Croc, because once you get him out of the swamp, the swamp's pretty much clean, because it's all stuck on him. But I don't think it was till the 80s that, that politics, because also you can look at Gruenwald's um, uh, Squadron Supreme. Right. And that's a very political book. You know, I, did we touched on this, I think, the last time I was here, and I was not in the know how far uh, forward 
thinking that book was. Oh, yeah. Until I just sort of read it again recently. Sure. And it is uh, uh, it, it left me. It was shocking. Well, that's... it's shocking how smart it is. I mean, it's Watchmen before Watchmen, isn't it? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's, and I was going to say, I think it's around the same time. I and, think it is around the same and, time. And, and we had so many poor imitations of uh-huh. Dark Knight and Watchmen, right? And I think Squadron Supreme very quietly because it was a sea level book anyway. Yeah, you know, and it, but it was but it was a good so book. smart and and really played to. What happens when these people who want to do good really start doing bad in order to do good? Sure, sure. And the lines just get blurred. And it's it's a smart book. I would say oh, yeah. if people haven't seen that, check it out. I do know it's on the um, um, Marvel, Unlimited. Marvel it's on Marvel Unlimited. Unlimited. Sure. sure. Fantastic. We, I have that as well. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Um, you know, I just had Charles Soule on. Oh, yeah. And he really kind of. That guy. He, well, yeah, I know, you know, his million books. But I, I had to confess that I really hadn't been reading The Inhumans. And he really went chapter and verse of what he's been doing. And he was, I'm like, oh, I'd read that. Oh, oh that's yeah. What, no, and I'm really a, glad I have Marvel he's Unlimited. He's a smart guy. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm digging oh, yeah. his Daredevil. He's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Absolutely. No, and that's another thing. Hey, way to go coming up with a new wrinkle for Daredevil. No kidding. Coming off of Wade Insomni and, and no Bendis kidding. and Brubaker and all the good people that have been writing Daredevil uh, in the shadow of Miller. Yeah. And, and you know, really starting with, you know, bringing back the Miller style and Can stuff. Can I tell you that nothing makes me more angry than when uh, you get this great run of a character and then the next guy comes on and you just go, good yes. luck with that, dude. Well, and then they do it. And then they do well, it. Well, that's good because I was going to say there was run, one run in there and I won't be mean. There's a couple. That you know, it's look, just people, like, yeah, I don't think so. And look, I checked out Not everybody while. scales the bar every time. But if yeah. you're... Um, Look, if you're Scott Snyder and you're coming after Morrison, what yeah. are the odds you're going to be great? Yeah, and but then, that de- that detective run, uh, the Black Mirror story that he did uh-huh, with Jock and uh-huh. with uh, Francesco Francavilla while Morrison was doing the Batman Robin stuff and everything. I mean, that's the thing. So, oh, I mean, they no, were no, actually I'm DC. saying he did it. Yeah. He killed it. Yeah. Him and Capullo killed yeah, it. Yeah, but I'm saying as opposed to, yeah, when he and Capullo were announced, it's like, oh, no. So oh, we already, right. Yeah, of we already course. knew that. We already you know, knew that. So he's great. Batman he's unbelievable. And then they get Tom King and you go, oh, geez, Tom, yeah, how are you? I, and Tom's unbelievable. I know, so I'm like, so happy you guys, for Tom. I'm so, I'm like, so angry at those guys because they're so good. Sewell's one of those guys like that. And oh, yeah. is the nicest guy in the world. Oh, yeah. So, yeah Sewell's awesome. I mean, He's great. Well, they're King, all just... Same with King. I mean, and that's why I was, I was very happy for Tom. I was very happy for Tom because... And you know what? Tom deserves you know, it. Oh, and Tom, if, great guy. If you guys aren't reading Vision, go go get best, Vision. Best... Honestly, best maxi series. Uh, I would agree. You know, of of the year. Oh, easily my favorite Marvel book, hands down. Yep, I would agree with that. It that was, it was Omega Men. Sheriff of Babylon. Sheriff of Babylon. I mean, is the guy. Absolutely. So angry. Yeah. So angry at that guy. <laughs> no, he deserves it. He well oh, deserves man. it. He's so good. That's awesome. Uh, man. I think that guy's a rising star over there. Oh, I, mean, I think he's. I think huge. it's. I, I. I think he's hit his uh, groove. I yeah. think he's doing just fine. So I, you mentioned Soul's uh, Daredevil, which I. I think is fantastic. Yes, I think he's great. Almost as good as his She Hulk. I love when love I love She-Hulk, when Charles sure. gets to write uh, lawyers. Absolutely. Yeah. And I did ask him I, at one point. I was like, and this was before I think we saw Daredevil versus She Hulk in a court of law, and I said legally. What kind of lawyer is Jen and what kind of lawyer is Matt Murdock? And he was able to be able to go like, this is the kind of thoughtful lawyer that Murdock is. This is the kind of lawyer that Jen Walters is. And I was like, you're one of the few people that can actually 
give me chapter and verse yeah, on, from, on from from you know the law perspective. The yeah, law the, perspective. Yeah, definitely. No, I. Agree so I with thought you. that was fascinating. No, everything everything Charles has written, I loved his swamp thing. Yes, that was really good. Yes, while uh, Snyder was doing um, at, was he, Snyder doing uh huh. Yeah. Jesus. Unbelievable I mean, stuff, on, guys. And Lemire. Leave a little for the rest of us. Well, you know, speaking <laughs> of which, you have you and uh, Gustavo, your Bizarro uh, collaborator, have got yes. something uh, coming we, out in we, just a couple weeks. We do. We, we have a story in the new, um, it's the DC Rebirth Holiday Special, which awesome. has got, uh, I think it's like an 80-page giant. I think it's got a ton, a ton of stories in it, including, and I don't think I'm talking out of turn here, uh, Paul Dini did the wraparounds with oh, Har- Harley Quinn. Fantastic. Um, and we are doing Detective Chimp. Uh, uh, teaming up with Batman. That's excellent. So it's big fun. So it's hard-boiled detective. It's the first time we've seen Detective Chimp in, in, in a while in Rebirth. I think since Willingham. I was going to say Willingham's group. What was, I think I, uh, what were Shadow Pack. Yeah, Shadow Pack. I think this is, the, this is the, the first time you've seen uh, Bobo since Shadow Pack. That's fantastic. Other and, than uh, uh, the Brave and Bold cartoon, That's right. So. And uh, I think people are going to get a big kick out of it. Gustavo's uh, um, uh, Bobo is great. Does and he speak in your He book? does speak. Okay, very good. Not only does he speak, but we do the whole thing in Sam Spade uh, voiceover. As well. So it yeah, is, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of Bogart. and uh, kind of fits. Yeah, of course. So we get the whole <laughs> Poor voiceover. Bogart is, as he got older, he got very chimp-like. Yeah. That's true. And I'm a, I'm a massive, <laughs> massive Bogart fan. Me too. Oh, man. So we get to do the whole film noir voiceover. and uh, it's It's really a ton of fun. It's a big, fun, fun story called uh, The Night We Saved Christmas. So I'm excited for people to come check that out. Uh, buy it. Tell them that you want more. We'd love to play more with uh, uh, Detective Chimp. It would be great to see a Detective Chimp miniseries I of know. him traveling around the DCU. Right? Absolutely. I mean, man. it seems right in our uh, strikes. Totally. Man. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. no, you guys are – you and Gustavo are a great team that Bizarro – Oh, he's the best. Bizarro and Jimmy – and you know. uh, we wrote this one together, which was really oh, fun. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. It was really wow. fun. Gustavo wanted to do layouts, and, and uh, so we got to jump on the Skype and talk a lot about what we wanted to do. And, that's cool. Uh, it's real fun. That's it's excellent. real man. fun. Ten-page story, you said? It's a ten-page story. That's cool. You yeah. know, I liked, um, and I, th- I think they did them about five or six. It was pre-Flashpoint. But they did several 80-page giants where they would do big anthologies and stuff. And give people just a shot at, like, playing with characters and see what what grabbed. I remember... Oh, God, and now I'm blanking. Uh, shame on me. Uh, the Immamans, Stuart and Catherine. And oh. if, not, if Stuart didn't draw it, then I know Catherine wrote it. Okay. And it was the most charming Lois and Clark story uh-huh. where Lois has the flu. And literally, Clark is just trying to do whatever he can to make her feel better. And he's it's amazing. And, and it's great because it's just them. So, it, you know, there's no pretense of him having to be bumbling. I but, love that. But the fact that deep down, there's a lot of Clark Kent and oh. Superman. And it's fantastic. And she is just like, you idiot. I'm okay. Oh. Just let me sleep. And he really is kind of tripping over himself trying to help her. It's great. That's adorable. But that's what you, you know, can do with funny? 10 pages. I, you know, I know, nice I little pitched, character slice. I pitched a Perry White 10-pager okay. um, where basically my take was Perry is uh, Mike Royko. Uh, for Chicago guys, because I grew up reading Ryko, and I was like, Perry was really important to Metropolis. Oh no, I think and, that's a good. And he's comparison. a columnist. Jimmy and Breslin like, in New York Jimmy is Breslin a good example. And, like a guy who just really had the heartbeat of the city, yeah. and then got moved to 
this position where he's a desk jockey now. Right. And it's sort of bumming him out. So it's basically Perry White getting back to his roots. Oh, that's uh, cool. And I, I had a lot. I, I pitched that one. I hope that maybe some point we'll get to do it. But yeah, it's man. a really fun story to just be able to, you know, as a guy who grew up reading Royco, I was like, this is a guy who has a lot to say. And he's wasted as the editor. You know, or yeah. feels wasted, feels like he's not doing good. And then it's sort of his arc of coming back into realizing, oh, no, this is the right job for me. This is where I'm, I'm, I can make a difference. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat little thing. No, I hope man, I get a I, chance to do that one. I, uh, that's very funny. I was, I, I was telling you off the air, I was just at Myopic Books, one of my favorite bookstores in Chicago. A great used uh, bookstore for people who might be traveling and looking for yes. little hidden gems. In fact, Bendis, he spent a month here shooting the Powers pilot for FX that oh, didn't get greenlit. Okay. And he's like, give me good bookstores. I'm like, myopic. You're going to love it. And, of course, he did. But uh, I just picked up uh, the Royko one more time. I think it's yeah. a collection of his, uh, the final collection of his mm-hmm. uh, uh, columns and stuff. And, yeah, I used the Jimmy Breslin comparison for New Yorkers. Um, I don't know of a current kind of, you know, spirit of the city columnist that has, like, the city's pulse the way Royko and Breslin did. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, don't, I don't know about that either. And, and you know, LA everybody is so goes, spru- spread out. I don't know if yeah. there's a guy like that in LA. Maybe Dan Savage in Seattle. Okay. Uh, maybe. No, there's really. I wouldn't say there's a heart of somebody like that in LA as much as. Um, you know, everybody's got their own blogs, and you really don't know where they're coming from, well, where they are now. anymore. Well, yeah, you know? those kinds of writers have migrated to yeah. cyberspace. You're yeah. right about that. So yeah. I think that yeah. there are voices, sure. but I don't know that there is there is inherently tied to a a periodical or a. Uh, well, and, and again, this was. I'm back sure in people the, will correct us. Yeah, and that's, and, and, and bring up and, ideas. Hey, seriously, like fill up the threads on yeah. uh, on Twitter or Facebook, and and you know, email me people that I'm I'm forgetting. But no, it's true. And again, this was back in the three network world. Right. AM and FM radio were still very important. Newspapers were as important. Yeah. And, you know, it's a different world now and it's a more fragmented world. But yeah, like guys like Breslin and Royko really had the city's attention. Yeah, they had a thing. Yeah. So no, I'd love to see something like that for Perry. That was another one that I was pulling from. I I got to interview Studs a couple times. He was awesome. He was tremendous. What an amazing guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we mentioned Bogart, of course, the, his last film, uh, The Harder They Fall, That's the boxing right. movie. Got to, got to talk to Bud Schulberg about that. Come working. on. Oh, yeah, man. What Makes Sammy Run. Yes, indeed. And One of on my the favorite water, books of on all the time. On the waterfront and, as well. Mm-hmm. No, he's, he, was, he always wanted uh, Ben Stiller to yes. do a movie version of What Makes Sammy Run. Yeah. So. The thing is, if you go back and read that book, it's all, it's all happened already. Like, all that stuff has come true. Well, We're just so like, far past it. Just like, like Facing the Crowd. Yeah, just like Facing the Crowd. And it was funny because um, the movie studios were talking about remaking Facing the Crowd. This is literally about 11 years ago because it's right before uh, Tyson fought Lennox Lewis. Uh-huh. And I would see Bird a lot because I was still working in sports radio, so I would see him, uh, Bert Sugar, but I would also see Bud, Bud Schulberg. And Bud and I were talking at uh, a De La Hoya fight. And he's like, yeah, they want uh, Jim Carrey. I'm not really crazy about that, which I thought was wow. hilarious to be the Andy Griffith Lo- Lonesome yeah, Rhodes yeah, yeah. character. And I'm like, well, I get it. He's like, yeah, I do too. He's just a little over the top for me. He goes, I don't buy him when he does drama. Right. And I'm like, okay. I'm yeah. like, I'm not going to argue with you, bud. You've been, you've been writing <laughs> you've been screenplays for... and novels for 50 years. Yeah, yeah no right? problem, man. No, he was wow. amazing. He was a great dude. He was a really wow. interesting dude. 
Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. That's rad. So, and speaking of writing, uh, yeah. you, uh, you're you still uh, Mr. Animation, and uh, you got some cool stuff coming up. I did. You know, they just announced uh, the, the Justice League action show has a release date, finally, uh, which I believe is December 16th on Cartoon Network. Wow, that soon. Oh, fantastic. Okay, because I saw it. I didn't see the date, but I did see that they announced it finally. And uh, uh, I, I was really lucky to get to write on that show, and it, it's a big, fun show. There are 11-minute episodes. Yeah, I was going to ask. So, like, is it a half hour and two 11-minute stories it's, it's per half two hour? two 11-minute stories per half hour. Okay. Um, so the theory, which was uh, dictated from our two showrunners, which were uh, Alan Burnett, one of the architects of uh, Batman the Animated Series and everything that you've yes, ever seen. Greatest, one of the greatest keepers of the DC animated universe yeah. ever. Absolutely. Along Absolutely. with Bruce Tim. I mean, you know. And Jim Krieg, who has written a ton of animation. Good for Jim Krieg, man. Jim's a great dude. Jim Krieg, of course, goes. He's got a great comic book history. Great he did all those uh, Earth X books with uh-huh. uh, with Alex Ross. Oh, did he really? He was the writer of Earth X and Mutant X and all, all those. Remember those were wow. in the early two thousands. Yeah. Dougie Brathwaite took over the interiors oh, yeah. of those books. I but don't they think were... I knew that he did worked on. Oh those. yeah, yeah. He worked a lot with Alex. So on Jim that and stuff. Alan really came up with this great. Very cool take, as far as I know. And it's basically, we drop in in the middle of the second act, and we're already hit the ground running. So there's very little, like, setting the stage. There's very little, here's what's going on. Like, boom, we're going. Like, okay. It's it's happening. Okay. So we jump in, and the bad guy's doing what the bad guy's doing, and we're catching up, and uh, it works really well. Like the whole thing feels very breathless, which is That's really good. fun. Yeah. It moves, and the bench. I, I all I can tell you is the bench is ridiculous. The hero bench or the writer bench? The bench of characters okay. that we can put in the show. Is unbelievable. That's fantastic. It's unbelievable. We're going to be excited see, to see all these people. You're so. going to see the first four, um, which are four 11-minute episodes make up the pilot, of okay. which I wrote two of them, the two nice. middle ones. Nice. Um, and you're not going to believe how many people we already get into it. It's not a, to blow it's anything. Unbelievable. I'm not gonna you're blow gonna, it's unbelievable. It's excellent. Gonna, it's huge. It's huge. It's you're huge. gonna love it. That's fantastic. It's amazing. So 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 basically, yeah, based on that, then Chachi is going to be there. Chachi's and, gonna be in and, it. And uh, Antonio Sabato. Yes. Jr. <laughs> We've got um <laughs> I'm telling you, the inferior five Make oh. their immediate. Actually, I would love to see the Inferior Five. Can I I'd... tell you, I've been wanting to reboot the Inferior Five forever. <laughs> like I, did they tell you that? No. Oh, I had a whole take on the Inferior. Dumb Bunny five. and all. Yeah, yeah. Although you can't call it Dumb Bunny anymore because well, it's probably politically do, incorrect. What I wanted to do was do their kids. So it's a new generation. Oh, that's funny. Um, and the, the whole idea was basically that they're in uh, Nebraska. And they're they're the coolest heroes in Nebraska. So they're like the Great Lakes Avengers, basically. They're like the Great Lakes Avengers, and they're so cool, they call themselves the Superior Five. Oh, very good. <laughs> the best joke, the best character I had was um, Awkward Man and Dumb Bunny's kid. No, Dumb Bunny was with, uh, uh, it was Awkward Man's kid was named uh, Lumberjackson. Okay. It was a huge lumberjack guy. Lovely. Named Lumberjackson. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was awesome, and he That's was cool. a uh, uh, he. He wore like the the flannel and had the big beard. And, Very good. Uh, the slicked hair, Lumber Jackson. <laughs> That's really cool. The uh, Have you read uh, Cave Carson has a cybernetic? Yes, eye? isn't that great? It's great. You know, I've been talking to Oming. Have you? Yeah, and, he's great. And I didn't realize he was the artist until and we were doing something separate and um, not a comic book thing. And um, 
I'm like, you know, I've been talking to him like almost weekly the last few few months. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, Mike's drawing this great book. And I'm like, hey, dumbass, you got to come on work and, and talk say? about this. He's like, he's oh, like, yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. But, you know, holidays. So I really – I was smart. I, I banked a bunch of interviews. I knew you were coming in. So I, I had myself insulated for the holiday period. But I kind of know, you know, this is like, you know, people are traveling and stuff. Obviously, yeah, sure, you're sure. traveling. I know. Bring so, here. You know, exactly. That's a fun book. But I love that book. Yeah, man. I haven't read. I, I bought uh, the second issue. I haven't sat down with it yet. I bought I it last Wednesday. I like Shade, too. I thought she, the Shade haven't concept read shade was really, it fit with, um, who did it, Milligan? Was yeah, Pete Milligan Pete did it Milligan. back in the day. Sure. It really felt like it sort of uh, was a companion piece to that That's cool. one. It uh, seems like, like those young animal books. Yeah. Wade, oh, Gerard Way really kind of yeah. has his finger on what makes those good. And I haven't, I ha- again, I've got the first three issues of Doom Patrol. I haven't sit, sat down with them. I, have, I still have them, too. I haven't taken a look at those yet. So. Uh, and Cave Carson apparently came from a, uh, did you see this? It came from a, uh, uh, something, it was a footnote in the Wikipedia, those who's those DC who's the DC who's, who's who, and yeah. nobody could tell him could tell Gerard Way what it meant. Right, he has He's a cybernetic like, what does this guy. Mean? Well, yeah, it's like what does it do? I don't know. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, Arnold Drake passed away. Yeah. before he tells. Isn't that sad? You know, another guy that's coming up. Hopefully, I I I, I will do this in in terms of our conversation. But Drew Friedman has been on the show before. The wonderful illustrator. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he has his new Fanographics collection of his. Uh, wonderful sketches that are almost fo- photorealistic of uh, great comic book uh, creators. Wow. And, uh, you know, I was going to say, sometimes the the history of comics is sometimes lost to us. And Cave Carson having yeah. a cybernetic eye is one of those it's examples. one of those things. And it's so weird because there really does seem to have been a disconnect since the 90s. Uh-huh. And I think right now, you know, we've got so many blogs and we've got people that do a good job yeah. of recapturing comic book history. But there was, it seems like, a disconnect in some ways. Right. And, and I'm glad to see that there are people kind of reconnecting the, the missing lines so that we do know the backstories of some of the things. Right. How they were created, what the, char- what the creators had in mind, um, you know, whatever. And, and, and really... Uh, this Fanographics book is terrific, and it has a lot of great people. Um, is it Irish Nep? I forget his name. The, the He was the letterer that okay. is really known for all the great – he created the Superman oh, logo. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I know so, who you're talking to. You know, Arlen Schumer did a great presentation of his work in New York. Okay. And uh, I know he's represented in uh, Friedman's book and everything. But Drew's right. coming up, hopefully – in a couple of weeks, and yeah, you know, it I, is interesting that we've lost a little of that history to the ages now. Uh, well, and hopefully, it's still. Hopefully, there's enough people there, yeah. that still want to talk. I know an independent comic book artist and writer who wants to do a thing at, about Mort Weisinger, the oh, DC, yeah. the Superman editor, yeah. before Julie Schwartz, right? The guy who did it in the fifties uh, through the very early seventies, right? And after um, Whitney Ellsworth. Left DC to uh-huh. work on the George Reeves Superman TV show. Wow. Mort took over the book. Mort, he took over editing the book and all that classic Silver Age stuff, right? Of like Pat Boone being in Superman books and uh-huh. Alan Funt and the Beatles right, and all that right. stuff. That was all during Mort's time. And um, he's like, you know, who who do you think are good writers and artists I can talk to that work for Mort? And I'm like, he stopped working for DC over 40 years ago, wow. like 45 years ago. I said, so I don't know who's left. I, I go, I imagine Len Wein might uh-huh. have stories. I don't know how much he directly worked f- with him. Yeah. I don't. Uh, Marty Pasco is another guy. Right, and I'm like, right. I don't know how much he worked directly with him. Wow. 
But I mean, that's the thing. I'm like, you know, you're George Kardashians, and uh, I think it was George, or however you said that guy's last name, right? Or uh, God, I'm trying, and now I'm blanking. Wade would know. Mark Wade would know all these names. Sure, of course. But a lot, a lot of those Leo Dorfman uh-huh. guys like that, you know, they're gone. Like the guys that really did work for Weisinger and stuff, they're all wow. gone. And Arnold Drake is another guy like that too. You know, I mean, so yeah, it's weird. You know, uh, God, there were so many good. Magazines when you and I were kids. Oh, yeah. Like Amazing Heroes uh-huh. and Comics Interview and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And Roy Thomas certainly does an amazing job with Alter Ego. And Michael Yuri does a great job with, uh, is it Back Issues? I think Back uh-huh. Issues yeah, the no, one back that's. Issues. Yeah. yeah, 70s and 80s and uh-huh. stuff. So, you know, we've got a few pockets here and there through magazine yeah, yeah. companies like Tomorrow's and stuff like that, but so many of them. It's yeah. so interesting that these these stories that. I really have just void popular culture at this point and really are almost the cornerstone of popular culture in movies, television, video games. Like, it's so interesting when you scratch the surface and go and, – and it's moving so quickly now. Like, I, I just read a, a really fun interview with uh, Ed Brubaker who was talking about his experience on Westworld. And, you know, he said he's he's answering the door for Halloween and it's all these kids dressed as the Winter Soldier. Oh, that's awesome. And his wife is going, this is the guy who created the Winter Soldier. And these kids just don't even know what, what she's talking yeah, about. She's mean? like, what are you talking so about? So he wrote you the movie? Wrote the movie? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and he, I think he said, like, don't confuse the poor children. Like, don't even bother. But but I just thought, like, it's so interesting now that these people have, have – we've gone out and we've conquered the world. You're right. And the thing is the and, – and, and believe me, I'm, I'm really happy that the movies and the television shows exist because they're great. Yeah. They are really, really great. But I don't want – the people to be left behind that really did create this stuff. And I, I am always happy when a Jerry Conway or one of these other Bronze Age art, uh, writers or artists step up and say, uh, you know, I, I did create that. Um, right. You know, I, I hope I get a check. <laughs> they do. Thank God. You know, I mean, it's getting better. It's getting better. Yeah. And you then know. you get something like, and I look, I don't know any behind the scenes of like Deadpool that has a special thanks, but it doesn't say created by. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, I mean, it seems like um, Rob has uh, done a lot of legwork and, right. and, you know, joined the team. I don't right, know if Fabian. Right. I have no idea. I don't know what Fabian gets for it. I, I really have don't. no idea. Or even did, well, you know, Fabian did a lot of the heavy lifting as far as really helping create the character. But didn't Louise Simonson co-create him too? Of that, I don't know. I'm not sure. Either. I don't know. See, this is where my ex, much like my Inhumans knowledge, my X Men knowledge kind of sucks. <laughs> so again, people are just you know yelling idiot right now. I know at right. their at their uh, at their at their uh, phones. And no, you're absolutely right that you do need <laughs> to. Uh, 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 the television seems to be very good about that. Whenever they introduce somebody, I do see you know like Justice League, Justice Society of America created by blah 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 blah. Or these heroes are like there, 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 yeah. there, there. So that's smart. No, I agree with that. I um, agree with that. No, and it's so funny, and we'll see what happens with Wonder Woman. We'll see what happens with Justice League. You can yell at all you want about the DC movies, but you can't complain about the DC television. Uh, television has just been fantastic. Yeah? It has just been fantastic. I mean, I it's getting to the point where I tape I tape every single one of the shows. Me too. Just to see who they're going to introduce. Yeah, it's the Wild same Dog. It, you're like, Wild Dog? Uh, do you remember Wild Dog? Yes, of course. Max Collins and Vigilante. Terry Vigilante. Vigilante. It's good to see Vigilante. Absolutely. I mean, they got Ragman on there. Yes. They, they got, I mean, it's crazy. Mr. Terrific is on Arrow. Yes. 
And also, uh, I lo- I do like that Jimmy Olsen is the guardian right now in Supergirl. Sure. That's okay. That's so fun. I'm for it. It's okay. It's so fun. Because it fits that. Did you, re- you know, I used to read Superman Family when Jimmy was action, Mr. Action. Uh-huh. And he was the investigative reporter. And uh-huh. it was basically like a tough Clark Kent, basically. Uh-huh. And it was because he was old enough and in his early 20s sure. that he wasn't the boy photographer anymore. Right, right. But he was in the thick of things and, you know, dealing with crooks and stuff and solving his own problems. And I, I would love him. that. I would love him to be Elastic Lad on Supergirl. Oh, sure. Oh, God, <laughs> You think yeah. we're going to get to that? You think we're going to get to Turtle Boy? You know, if I I bet the only <laughs> limitation would be that it might be cost prohibitive from a CGI right. standpoint. That's right. the only thing I can think of. But, yeah, I think that would be terrific. I, I would write that episode I where, really where he like turns it. into Turtle Boy and Supergirl has to hit him. And Snapper. I love that Snapper Car is on there. Everybody. That's great. That's Everybody. Great. I mean, anybody that you could ever think of. Monel. I know, Monel. Exactly. Monel is on. I really, like, I was insane. very excited. He is my it's favorite insane. Legionnaire. He always was. Was he? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, well, it, I mean, I remember reading in a reprint that Superboy's older brother story. And it's just oh, this so yeah. you know it's, it was so sweet and it's funny because Dan Wickline at Bleeding Cool, who I really like, he's a good guy and he's a good writer, but he did a few nitpicky things, and he's like, you know, that was kind of an amnesiac uh, mistake on Monel's part, and that's why he kind of came up with that name for himself oh. because he had met Jor-El okay. before his ship had landed on Earth, and uh, and also the whole Daxum. Uh, Krypton Civil War wasn't, right. you know, a real thing back in the 60s. But all that said, so he's like, you know, why would he call himself Monel? And I'm like, well, I bet they explain that in the show. I, I'm sure they will. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's some deep, dark secret that maybe, you know, the uh, the House of El might have been on Daxim or something. Because they are right. like the Romulans and the Vulcans in terms yeah, of they are. coming from the same people. Right, right. At least they were in the comics during that War of the Superman James Robinson story, Right. Which I love so much. I love that. So, yeah. No, it's cool. And again, you know, you were asking me, we, I had Steve Orlando on uh-huh. recently, and some of the stuff we talked about, I love that he gave Kara um, a foreign accent uh-huh. in the comic. And so she speaks kind of awkwardly. Uh-huh. And it does kind of bring that, uh, it brings that alien immigrant thing without hitting your head, you know, hitting yourself mm-hmm. over the head. And also it solves the problem of, you know, the blonde, blue-eyed girl who looks very white and very Americanized. Right. And it's like, no, she's still different. She's and still even, an alien. Even, and even as Kara, she, and, uh, in, her, in her Linda Danvers right. guys, she's, right. still, she's still different. Steve's a, it's, he's a, another one of those smart guys. Oh, yeah. Real smart in his storytelling. And yep. one of these guys who have been fans for just so long. Seems like, like it. Just so long. Yeah, he gets it. He does. Well, that's a that's been the great thing, and you know, you and I have talked before about uh, my own dissatisfaction with the way things went with the new Fifty Two mm-hmm. in the main books, and it really does seem like Rebirth has righted the ship. I think so, man. You know? I mean, I think that look, not to, I, I'm not, I have no part of it. I'm just an out outsider reading, and I'm having a great time. Yeah, man. I love the joy, and I love the um, excitement that people have really tapped back into. And you know, I think uh, uh, just reading what Jeff has said about it, it really was about legacy, about legacy and history and sure. a lineage that we were just missing. And to put these characters in the middle of nowhere with no connection to anything, um, hurt our hearts. Yes. 
You know, well, because all these hurts our because hearts. we were friends with these heroes, and they were all friends as well. That's right. And that all disappeared. Yeah, and they were meeting each other for the first time and doing it in a kind of back to what we were saying at the beginning, this Marvel sort of way of who are you? Right. I got to fight you, and it's like no, it's Barry and Hal Jordan for Christ's right. sake. We love them. You know, if I could be Jimmy Stewart, these guys, yeah, you, you, you used to be friends for gosh sake. Right. What are you doing? That's right. So. so I I think that that is something that we were missing, and and I think it's really it's worked. Yeah, yeah, it's worked. Well, and, and, and wiping out the Titans. Yeah, and that's that core of not only the generation. I mean, I I felt it a bit. I was in college when when Wolfman and Perez were doing their thing, uh-huh. and I and I enjoyed the book. I was always more of a Legion guy than I was a Teen Titans or X Men guy. But no, I get it. And certainly the people. Now why? I just what, what I loved all the I loved all the aliens, the aliens and I loved the idea that they represented so many different planets yeah. and so many different superpowers. Uh-huh. The whole thing. Yeah. I was loved from Chameleon Boy to even Matt, even the stupid ones like Stone Boy and Matter Eater Lad. Loved it. Sign me up. Loved it. Got no problem with that. That was another one I'm I've been dying to do is, Matter the, Eater is, Lad? The, is the Legion of Substitute Heroes. Fantastic. I've Polar been, Boy. I've been dying to do a Legion of Substitute Heroes. Chlorophyll Kid. Yes. Uh, I love I love them. Night Lass. Night Infectious Lass, Night Lass. Uh those Giffen um series were so important. The five, to me. Year, the five years later stuff uh-huh. work out really dark. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, I really. Oh and my the God. Levitt's uh, uh, Legion is just. You know, honestly, and even that was another bright spot post Flashpoint was wow, it is so good to have Paul writing Legion again. Yeah. And, and he was doing it before Flashpoint as yeah. well. And that's the thing. It was like there they. As I keep saying, that's the thing. It's like. Oh, there they are. Right. There's those heroes that like right. have the backstory and and what you love. And you know, you could be shitty about it and say it's dad's comics, but I think Marvel Zombies would agree it's the same thing that mm-hmm. the, the the lineage and the understanding that no, you know, there's always been a good thing about whatever Marvel relationship you want to put together mm-hmm. or a funny thing where the two guys irritate each other. I mean, you know, Steve Rogers and, and uh, Hawkeye. Right. I mean, you know, it's like, no, if you take that re- relationship away and start them both at square one again, you know, it worked in the Ultimates, but the Ultimates was a different thing and you were still getting the 616 That's right. while that was happening. That's right. It wasn't completely torn away. That's right. It's hard because... Anything, you know, this is something that when when uh, we would talk to Len Ween, he said the most genius thing I've ever heard on about comics, which is continuity ties your best storyteller to your worst storyteller. Yes. yes. So the, his, the the weight of 50 years of continuity on any relationship is tough because you got to pick and cho- you got to cherry pick oh, yeah. what aspects of it you want to bring out. Sure. And also as a storyteller, what new are you going to add to a relationship that could have feasibly been around for 75 years? Absolutely. So I do get why wiping the slate clean feels um like you're taking the chains off. Right. It's you free. Know, yeah, it, absolutely. It's it frees totally things up. freeing. It absolutely. frees things up. Because otherwise you're like, geez. I can't do that. Do Back I, in 67. How, exactly. You know, Sinestro did that to Al Jordan. Exactly. And everybody knows it. So, but in the same time, <laughs> when you followed that, to to remove all of that and, and the crap on the continuity makes the people who came along for that whole ride... Yeah, they're left out. Well, they walked away. That's why That's sales right. dropped. That's Everybody right. walked away. That's exactly right. So no, I get it. I, I want to. I want you to make your uh, your commitment 
So uh, it's. I think you got at least ten minutes. Yeah, know, yeah, no, we're good. To, like we're jump right. into a, ca- a cab or something. Oh, is there a clock? You can see a clock. Uh, yeah, no, I we're was going to say, yeah, yeah, we're fine. Okay, well, uh, because I want I want to know about uh, some other TV stuff you got brewing. I'm. Uh, uh, it's funny that you ask. I'm. I'm very lucky. I'm writing a pilot for Freeform right now. Fantastic. Uh, that which the former ABC, the family, former ABC family that has always been very sci-fi and geek. Yes. Uh, friendly. Yes. So they're looking at some genre stuff, and uh, I'm writing a pilot for them. Uh, and my producers are uh, very lucky to be working with uh, Tara Butters and Michelle Fazekas, who uh, the listeners might know were running Agent Carter for Excellent. a while. Excellent. And they were running um, uh, Resurrection, and they're the ladies who created Reaper. Uh, they're Reaper very was great. Reaper great. was really funny. So smart. I got to meet Ray Wise, and I'm Did like, you? and I'm like, dude, you're an excellent devil. He's, <laughs> I mean, these ladies are so smart. I'm so lucky to be working with them. Uh, and so we've been working on this project for a little over a year. We sold it to Freeform, and uh, I'm writing the outline right now, and wow. I get to write the script. And uh, it's set in Chicago, so hopefully oh, I'll get to come and uh, shoot a pilot. Boy, Not that'd be wood. good. Yeah, that'd man. be fun. And this is a totally original concept. Totally it's not original. A, it's not Concept, not based on anything, and, okay. uh, except my own my own stuff. So that's hopefully huge. Man. That'll be uh, um, my next big thing that I'm working on. That's excellent. No, they they are tremendous creators. Oh, they're amazing, and uh, I'm really it's a hope- dream come true to get to like work with them. I bet, man. No, and you know that's a that's a great household. Tara Butters and Mark Guggenheim. The, I asked I asked uh, uh, Tara about Mark. I was like, how does he get all that stuff done? She's like, I don't know. How the two of them get all that done? No kidding. Honestly, because that's what I asked Mark. I got to talk to Mark about it. And I'm like, seriously, man, aren't you looking at over each other's shoulders? He's like, yeah, of course, all the of time. Of course. One showrunner for Marvel, <laughs> one showrunner for DC. I mean, it's kind it, of was, fantastic. it was amazing. They were writing comics for, uh, they wrote a, a Captain Marvel run that uh, we talked a lot about. Uh, the, the, the women did? Or, uh, yeah, Tara, no, or Tara and Michelle. Mark. Wow, Tara I didn't and realize Michelle that. wrote a, a Captain Marvel run. I think it was like, Six, eight issues or something That's like fantastic. That. It okay. was really fun. You know, I'm hoping... I, I was sad that Haley Atwell lost her new series. The fact that she's free again, I, I, I hope they can shoehorn some sort of flashback story where... Because Jeff Mace now being in S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh-huh. I, and him being the Patriot. And also, I loved how they retconned him right? to be one of the faux Captain Americas of the post-war period. Right. I think it would be great to see... Him trying to be Captain America with Haley uh, being that Agent would Carter. Be really interesting. And, and believe me, I got I got to call into Loeb, and I'm hoping that we talk soon. We've been texting that would each be other. Awesome, but yeah, that's that's my pitch. pitch. That. Oh hell yeah! Man. By the way, Jason O'Mara, my Batman in many of my movies, the Batman yes, voice. It did. I know. I got to meet him in New York. He. Uh, he was uh, doing the press uh, junket for Justice League Dark, uh huh, and could not have been a sweeter guy. Sweet guy, and, right? Uh, he's a great Batman. He's really like stepped up to that role. Like yeah. I know uh, when he did Justice League War, it was something that was really intimidating to him because he said, as a, as a kid growing up in uh, uh, Ireland, I believe, yes. yeah, he's he from was Ireland. like. All I all I did was read Batman comics in college. He was like, I I love Batman. That's awesome. It was so unbelievable because you don't. You know, there aren't a whole ton of actors who come in and are like unabashedly comic book fans. Oh yeah. Well, you know? and it was funny because I'm like, what other bat, what other superhero, you know, characters would you like to be on film? He's like, well, fucking Batman. Man. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess. And I go, well, you're already Batman. He goes, yeah. And he goes, and it's great in animation, but I want to be Batman on film. And he I'm does. like, okay, he'd be great. He was, I like, he was the best thing about the American life on Mars. 
Oh, totally. And he really was great. Yes, because it was great. It was kind of. It's not as good as the British one. If no. you've never seen the British one, it's kind of like Elementary. If you've never seen Sherlock, that's right. I think Elementary is a good. It's begrudgingly a good show, but it's not Sherlock. That's right. And it and it does kind of bug me uh-huh. the, of the changes that they made. And Life on Mars, uh, the American Life on Mars, I'd say the same thing. But that said. He was fantastic as Sam Tyler and the main guy. He's great. And yeah, he's he's terrific. And also great seeing Constantine in uh, Justice Yes. League so How about that? He's great. He was funny. And the they two got of them Matt were Ryan. Yes. Matt yeah. Ryan? Yes. Isn't that who it is? I think that's his name. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and that's why I couldn't remember his name. But yeah, I mean, no. He he was another one that yeah, so excited to do the cartoon. It's great that his schedule allows him to do it and still I and know. also showing up on Arrow as he did. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. No, it's that's great. really cool. It's wonderful when people really bite into a role and just love it as much as we love seeing them do oh, it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't that yeah. cool? Definitely. Let me ask you, and I know you can't go into detail on Justice League action. Yes. From a tone standpoint. Yes. How is it different from the movies? Can you can you quantify? Absolutely, it? I think you're going to see in Justice League action. It is it is a. I mean, even in the in the title, it's a lot more fun. It is much more inclusive. It's brighter. Okay. Um, we're not going as dark, even even as dark and sophisticated as it was on um, Justice League Unlimited. Okay, um, you're still going to get a lot of really. I mean, it's fun. It's comedy. It's bouncy. There's big action. We still take it very seriously. The stuffs the stuffs happening. We're real serious with the characters, but. Um, not all the characters take themselves as seriously as as you think. So okay. you're going to get a lot of different tones. And so whoever's showing up is really going to drive it. You ah, know? Okay. I think really when you see who's there, you're going to go, oh, oh, I kind of know what, what, what we're what in to expect. for. You okay. know? Okay. Um, but it's a lot of fun. No, it's looking forward to it. It's a lot of fun. And they're fast. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So that's coming up, and uh, that's mid-December, December that's 16th. That's mid-December. A lot of stuff for December. That, and then um, check out the uh, the holiday, the holiday issue, issue of uh, DC Rebirth. Yeah. Very cool. With Detective Chimp. Yeah. And, and people uh, can always find me on Twitter at, at Heath Corson. Excellent. Uh, and listen to the Nerdist Comics panel. You're kicking ass on that show. Oh, dude, am, you're so am, sweet. I'm really glad that it is on a weekly schedule. And yes. uh, you guys have uh, come up with great guests. My best to blacker. I haven't Certainly. had him on forever, but I, I do miss him. I keep and, trying uh, to get him to come to Chicago with me for Thanksgiving. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's afraid of the cold. He's afraid of the cold. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing right now. I mean, really, this is I like. I know. This is easy. It, it really is. I mean, it's, you know, upper 30s, low 40s and stuff. So, no, I can imagine. Oh, the, the West Coast guys, they don't know. They don't no, know. No, my blood's thinned. It's true. It's it, Well, no, and I know that, too. I know when you even spend just a one season out there. Oh, you're done. Exactly, man. The the <laughs> the crust uh, comes off of us, and we're all tender no feet kidding. again. No, I understand. No kidding. But you're kicking ass. I'm really happy for that. Oh, you're again, the best. Nerdist, uh, Nerdist Comics. Is it, oh, it's, it's just a, a comic. Nerdist Writers Comics Panel. No, just no? the Nerdist Comics Panel. Nerdist Comics Panel. All right, yes. fine. And it's on, of course, the Nerdist Network. Yes, check us out. And, and absolutely, because really, uh, great example of good conversation and one of the reasons why our, our guest today, Heath Corson. So thank you as always. And always great to a see pleasure, you. pleasure, my friend. Have good holidays. You too. And, and I'll see you at one of these cons. Maybe C2E2. I was going to say, are you coming back in the Maybe. Where they're still trying to figure out. I did okay. a bunch of moderation uh, um, at the last one, and I'm hoping I get a chance to come back and, and do it again. There you go. Heath Corson. Great talking to him and uh, great sharing it with you on today's episode of Word Balloon. It was all brought to you by GeekFuel.com. GeekFuel is a great subscription box service that ships out a mystery box each month. It has at least $50 worth of value for just $15. 
$15 plus shipping and handling. We're talking about an exclusive t-shirt, a full downloadable game, and five to seven other great geek culture items every month. This is a great Christmas gift, or buy it for yourself and you'll have several holiday and birthday gifts to share with friends and family for months to come. You can start your subscription today and get a free bonus item worth $10 in your first box if you head to geekfuel.com slash wordballoon. That's geekfuel.com slash wordballoon. Thanks again for listening today. Uh, more great episodes coming up this month of December. Uh, I've suddenly got a lot of free time on my hands and a lot of opportunities to talk to some of your favorite creators, artists, writers, newcomers, all talking about the geek culture, some uh, things that they're working on, and their thoughts as we head into 2017. Please join me for the next episode of Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016.